everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Negativity is a common theme in police work. Officers are constantly responding to traumatic, dangerous, and often chaotic scenes, and that stress just becomes embedded in their psyche. John Stevenson talks about how a career in law enforcement nearly ruined his life until he chose to change his mindset and rid himself of that negative thinking addiction. The current political climate around police has also made it exponentially difficult to go on doing the work that others choose not to do. Get an insight into the mind of a dedicated officer of nearly 30 years with John Stevenson. Here it is, episode 506. Mr. McQuilkin, thank you so much for being on another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I am always stoked to see you as my co-host. Well, I'm always excited when we have a guest in-house. Isn't it usually a much more rich conversation? And intimate. Oh, like that flannel you're wearing. I know. This little guy? I wouldn't really worry about this little guy. Looks great with the hair. Why don't you turn to the left a little bit so you can see that orange skull, which is that Power Athlete orange that we rock so much on our website? So much room to breathe and uh, mobility. Well, you know what's cool is I, uh, when I ordered those flannels, I made sure the double X fit me because people bitch about stuff. And I'm like, hey, how does it fit? I just tell them if the double X fits me, you'll be fine. So, and oh, it, uh, it fits. Uh, I got this neat pocket. Uh, I did cut the sleeves off of my red one just so I could have a, you know, for that, uh, what was it? The floor press, dumbbell floor press fly that we did the demo on, so I cut it for that one. Oh, I feel you should do all the Johnny Bod, Jack oh. Street demos in that shirt. I like it. No, I'm, I'm definitely game. <laughs> uh, uh, Harry did just tell me that we got a few recommendations for the sleeves to be cut off by me. So when I go up to go sign all the uh, Move the Dirt flags, we'll, we'll cut a couple sleeves and we'll sell a f- couple special editions. Well, you mean sell the sleeves? <laughs> As the what, sh- like uh, um, head coverings? I mean, maybe we could sell them as face coverings. Just put them in the the package with. Yeah, (laughs) like your fucking slips. What are we gonna do with these? Seriously. Uh, Anyway, well, speaking of Jack Street, our guest and I got to get a little pump on this morning. Nice. Yes. Welcome, John. We got two Johns in the house here. Yeah, I I was uh, I was in the building, but not training today. So uh, one of my buddies came to town to help me finish my rock crawler truck, and so we've been thrashing for. This will be four days. So we got a ton of work done, man. We did, we did about a month's worth of work in about four days. Oh, I mean, it looks good. Yeah. It's not rushed. No. I mean, it's it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Like, whenever you talk to people, like, oh, so long ago, I'm like, dude, we did that shit in about 10 hours, dude. So, yeah, it was good. Well, trucks is one of the many things in which we have common with yes. our guest today. Uh, John Stevenson, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? John Stevenson. I was uh, John Wayne. John, John Wayne. Wayne. John Wayne Stevenson. That's right. Yes, that is my name. Um, I was a police officer, and I've spent 29 years in police officer as in law enforcement and corrections. Uh, retired from the Austin Police Department in January of this year. Uh, did 19 years with them. Come from a family of cops. My wife did 26 years. Just retired in March. Older brother's in his 30th year. Little brother's in his 15th year. Wow. Yeah. Grandfather was a police officer. Company business. Yes, yeah. yes, family business for sure. And then neither one of the kids I have two kids, uh, both of them fighting Texas Aggies. Thank you. Yes. Gig them. Yes, gig them. Exactly. I I don't know what this. That's a know, Texas weird, thing. Weird like Texas A and M like. Oh, I make fun of them. It's whoop whoop. Oh, is that what yeah. it is? So yeah, we, I one, say gig one of our, them. 
one of our interns was a big Texan. They had the ring and the whole deal. You oh, know? well, it is a cult. Oh, it's not a cult. You wouldn't call it a cult. Like, I, I can tell you stories upon stories. One particular one, there's a guy that I worked with. He and his wife were both uh, Texas Aggies. They went down to a Home Depot one day, and they, his wife talked him into buying some trees, something small. But he was trying to fit them in the back of his minivan. And he's standing parked in front of the uh, lawn and garden section of Home Depot, trying to figure out how he's going to get these trees in the back of his minivan. He and his wife, like all good Aggies, wear their ring all the time. And a guy walked by, just saw his ring. Went to, his, went to the parking lot, got in his truck, drove up beside him, and just walked up to him, showed him the ring, just goes, hey, let's put those trees in my truck, and I'll take them to your house wherever you live. Yeah. So if that's a cult, yeah, they, we'll go with that. It is a cult. There's yes. a term called a two-percenter, John, meaning yes. you don't attend the football games, you don't buy in, you just go for the value education. So a two, only 2% two of the school is not involved and participate in the cult. Wow. And if you're really into the cult, you're, you're said to be red ass. There's a whole thing that goes with that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not qualified to. We'll, at, we'll call up Luke K. Yeah, what's intern. a red ass? I mean, you yes. know what a one percenter is? No. Oh, okay. So uh, outlaw motorcycle clubs are known as one percenter yes. clubs. So back in the day, there was an article in like Time Magazine or some deal where they um, had a big motorcycle rally. It was probably back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, somewhere in there. They had a motorcycle rally, and, uh, you know, the most of the people showed up, but there was, like, a bad element. I think it was after World War II showed up, and they fucking drank and beat people's asses, and they wrote in the article that, like, 1% of, like, the people that showed up were, like, the bad seeds. And so at that point, uh, outlaw biker clubs like uh, Pagans, Hells Angels, um, Mongols, Outlaws. Banditos. And Banditos. Um, so there's probably, like, I think there's probably five and then there's a bunch of sub clubs. Um, they, they kind of took this Embrace, moniker and they embraced it. the one percenter. I like mm-hmm. it. So like when I lived back in Philly, um, the guys that helped me build my first chopper were pagans and they all had like 1% tattoos here on their hands. So that was like, you know, so if they have 1% tattooed, you're obviously in a 1%, you're, you're just not randomly tattooing 1%. On Are them. they confused when this social media wave is going after the one percenters? Do they feel uh, if, attacked, if targeted? Put it like this. <laughs> if you referred to yourself as a one percenter around uh, outlaw bikers, that would definitely catch you a massive beat. So, uh, or called them out. Yeah. So that <laughs> yeah. there's a, uh, yeah. So like there's. Get you your know, ass kicked for saying something like that. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's funny that they said two percenters. So like, ah, oh, can't be a one percenter, but you can be a two percenter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, College Station is, I mean, you've lived in Lubbock. As well, so you're just used to shithole towns. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have to say though, my daughter's still there. She's a senior this year, and anytime that I've gone to visit my kids in College Station, and we go out to a restaurant or go out to eat or anything, it's usually students working at the restaurant stuff. And so it's yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir, thank you, please, whatever. As opposed to maybe somewhere here local, you go downtown to eat and you have somebody dripping heroin into your food. Yeah, I'm not going to defend Austin at all either. Yeah, so. okay. okay. Well, um, you know, the one thing I've really struggled with is uh, when you go to a place to eat now uh, with people wearing masks, I can't understand a single thing Fucking they say. Nothing. Uh, they, coffee today. Not only like they, I can't understand what they're saying. Like, uh, you know, they're behind a screen and they're fucking up orders. Like, we haven't been out. Like, we went to order and, and I, I took uh, Will to get Starbucks. They fucked up like our order. And I'm like, well, you're wearing a mask behind a screen. Like, you can't hear 
Uh, so they're just randomly giving you shit. Yeah. Uh, there is a new butcher in Dripping Springs. Cat and I went last night. Well, highly recommend. Called? Ooh, I can't pronounce it. It starts with a T. It's over by the UPS. Uh, oh, the yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just saw the signs by for Homespun. it the other day, but they hadn't opened yet. Oh, yes. We went. They opened early to try to get as much income, but uh, deli, deli sandwiches and then full-on butcher. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to start a, a they're building a breakfast bar oh, and God. be the breakfast joint in Drip. There is no real good. Well, that uh, that time place was time and dough. Time and dough. Uh, I think they're. I, I think they went out of or they moved because um, it's by my place. Yeah. Um, yeah. To you, but uh, uh, Pigpen is moving in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little sign for Pigpen to look forward to. But we while Will's in town, you should check that out. Okay. Um, but we were talking about, I guess, communities and small towns, which is a great transition to community efforts and growing uh, force and how much Austin is changing in your experience seeing that change in 29 years as a Austin police officer. Has Austin always been a little on the... I mean, I remember when I came here for the first time in 99, uh, we were down on 6th Street and it was all kind of had like a little funky college weird vibe but i but i went to berkeley so yeah. for me it was like very uh, not weird because uh like my perception of weird was berkeley and san francisco and then you came to austin and i was like oh sixth street has like a like a strip a little weird it yeah it's always said that little keep it weird thing is weird for me i worked in the state prison system first came to work here and went to work in the jail at travis county and austin was such a chill place that there were two rival prison gangs, major prison gangs in the state of Texas that in prison they would have probably dealt with each other. But they would like sit next to each other at tables and play cards and dominoes and stuff. And so like me coming from the state prison to the county jail, I like talk to those dudes. I'm like, hey, what's up, man? What do y'all got going on? Is something about to go down here? And they're like, nah, dude, Austin's just one of those places. If you just mind your own business and stay out of other people, we don't mess with each other. And so even like that, like even in the, in the, in the jail or whatever. So Austin was a really. What did the gangs? Just, uh, were they um, um, like uh, MS thirteen? Were they uh, Texas Syndicate and Mexican Mafia? Yeah, so Mexican yeah. Mafia. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say those are probably the two dominant. Uh, you still get like um, uh, was it like Nazi lowriders and all that kind of stuff out here? No. Whenever I used to actually, I actually taught gang intelligence when I worked in corrections, and mostly uh, Aaron Brotherhood of Texas were more oh. the the white supremacist type people here okay. around in Texas. Yeah. yeah. In, in California, it's, uh, you get what, like MS 13, uh, Nazi low riders. And then, uh, like black gorilla family, black gorilla family was an old school deal. It was in the Texas prisons. But whenever I worked there, I went to work in the Texas prison system in 92. Didn't really see a whole lot of them. It was more so, uh, the bludgeon crips had come out by yeah, them. Yeah. And so everybody wanted to be a blood or a crip by them. Well, but, well what's crazy everything is, was the, is in California, um, all of a sudden the bloods and the crips, you know, obviously mortal enemies, which is crazy because they're like streets apart. Like, hey, if you're rolling 60 over here on 61st, something else. But I think when they got to prison, I mean, obviously there was a conflict, but then it became a race thing where it's like, well, you're black on black. I mean, these dudes are, you know, Aryans, you know, and so they kind of identify. And I think that there's some prison truces that make up uh on different rival gangs once they kind of get in there based on race one that's one thing i could say when people the the unit i actually worked at was the up until about 94 it was the only male reception center for the entire state of texas i saw everybody from petty thieves to death row wow and i used to as you've already figured out i love to talk and like hey if i'm gonna be locked up with these people 
Uh, might as well figure out what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. So I would talk to them, you know, talk to a lot of them, heard a lot of them stories and what they were in there for some pretty scary shit. But, um, did you ever add, like get into like the, um, uh, like whatever, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you did the same thing that like, um, you know, you're hearing this fucked up and it's like, what was the mechanism to get you here? Did you ever like ask him like, there, Hey, like what was your oh, childhood? Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, did you have two parents in the home? Like what, you know, like it, I actually, there was a lot of guys for some reason that were assigned to the, the prison that I worked at, you know, for your trustees to get mm-hmm. everything done or whatever. There was oddly, there was a lot of them in there for either killing their wife for cheating on them or killing the boyfriend of the wife. Really? Yes. I, I talked to a lot of those. Yeah. There's another guy that said he woke up. He said, you know, you know, boss, I don't know what happened. He said, he was from Houston. He said, I went to this party. We was all shooting hair on, and he said, I woke up and there were seven people dead. And oh, Jesus. put me in prison. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, yeah. like, I think for the most part, unless you've had some really, really traumatic shit happen early in life, like, if you're not under the influence of something, I think most people within 90% will make the better decision to not fucking axe murder people. Like, and I, but I think, like, all of a sudden, like, uh, you know, I mean, we saw this all the time in uh, where we lived in... Uh, where I'm from in uh, Orange County, Newport Beach, where our shop and power athlete and CrossFit Balboa started was in Costa Mesa. And there was a huge homeless encampment over on the river. And there, if you drew a beeline from where the camp was to like downtown, like kind of Costa Mesa, where all the food places were, like went right through our uh, parking lot. So we used to see these, um, we used to call them the zombies of Walking Dead that had been like whacked, whacked on meth for a few days because meth, oh, I, mean, yeah. I mean, dude, the meth in California, I mean, it's where they cook it out there in the IE and uh, these dudes would get methed out and you would just see them like zombies just walking, like cars coming by, like fucking into traffic. And I remember thinking like, there's probably a lot of bad decisions that led up to this, but like the state these people are in, probably anything fucking goes. Yeah, I would agree. There's uh. I never, I don't know, I talked to some of the people about, you know, like I say, they would tell me what they were in there for and things like that. One guy in particular, I remember, he said that uh, he went home on Father's Day and his wife was in bed with another dude. And he said, you know, Mr. Stevenson, I always carried a pistol on him. He had a thirty-eight on him. And uh, he said he started just having a fit, obviously. And he said, then the dude started talking trash to him. He's like, hold up, man. I come home to my house on Father's Day in your bed and my wife, you're going to talk shit? He said, I took my pistol out and shot him three times in the stomach. Oh. He said, then the guy started trying to crawl out of the house, and he kept talking shit. He said, so I shot his ass in the head twice. He said, he said, just shut up and just left the house. He'd been fine. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it was, and the, actually the funny part of that story is that guy, I can still, I won't say his name, but I still remember his name this day. I can still picture his face. He came up to me one time. He goes, hey, Mr. Stevenson, check this out. He said, uh. Visitation this weekend, he said, uh, my kids brought my grandkids up here. He said, I got to see my grandkids for the first time. It's like, oh, man, that's cool, whatever. Talking to you, and talked about that. He's really excited about that. And then he come up a couple of weeks later. He goes, hey, Mr. Stevenson, he said, you remember I told you, you know, my grandkids got to come up here and see me and all that kind of stuff? I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah. He said, so my wife sent me a letter. I'm like, yeah. He said, he goes, can you believe? He said, she told me, she said, hey, maybe when you get out of prison, we can work things out. He said, what the hell? He said, well, I mean, she'd already took like, he'd been locked up for 10 years at that time. He goes, and that's me. And his deal to me, cause I was 20 years old when I went to work in the prison. This guy was in his mid thirties. He said, Mr. Stevenson, just be careful. There's some crazy ones out there. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, shit, he, he probably never get out. 
Yeah, yeah, he'll get out. Yeah. What do you get, like 25 to life? I don't know. I didn't. Yeah. I either didn't ask him or I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Damn. But one thing, going back to what we were first saying about the gang stuff, that those all those guys would tell you that when they walked in the back door, they automatically categorized each other by race. Yeah. Automatically. Yeah. Number, first thing is you're categorized by race. Yeah. So, yeah. It was some wild well, stuff. It's a easy way to identify. Yeah. You know, it's uh, I mean – and, and what's crazy is we get into this, you know, like once you get out in the normal world and people are like, oh, um, you know, stereotypes don't exist. And, pre, you know, I don't see, I'm like, shit, man, like that's all they see in Hold prison. On. See, stereotypes don't exist. This yeah. is, this is oh, funny uh, because. Uh, haven't you heard that? Like stereotypes, color doesn't matter in this. And yeah. I'm like, well, obviously that happened. Uh, if you go look in the prison system, it does. Well, I've had the name Big Country for 25 years. No, yeah. I don't get I don't believe it. And that. they hadn't even seen that Super Duty on 37s that I drive either. <laughs> yeah, I got that I got that name good 25 years ago. And it was given to me by the inmates. Mm-hmm. The convicts in jail. Yeah, so I was categorized stereotype whatever you want to call it right off the bat, which was fine. It was actually it's kind of funny Bef- before I left the jail and went to work at the police department. Well, the, the name followed me to the police department because there was three or four guys in my police academy that came from the sheriff's department as well. And so the name, the, the nickname followed me. But prior to that. You know where that, that nickname comes from, right? No. You know where Big Country comes from? Uh-uh. So there was a basketball player. Uh, Bryant the, Reeves. Yeah, Bryant Reeves. So there was a basketball player, a uh, big white dude, and that was his nickname was Big Country. And he played in the <laughs> NCAA tournament and actually did pretty well. And they like highlighted him or whatever. And then at that point, every big dude that could shoot hoops was Big Country. Yeah. Yeah. He was Grizzlies. And then he played with your boy. Sharif Abdul-Rahim with oh, the Grizz. Yeah. Well, they... It's way back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they must I, have been reaching for some stuff because I cannot play hoops to save my life. What year was that? Uh, uh, 96. I was yeah. deep in the basketball. Because... Nine, uh, nine, late 90s. Um, Kobe Bryant era. Sharif was there in like 95, 96. And then uh, he went... And then he was there at Cal for one year and then went to the NBA. Mm-hmm. I got that nickname around 95, 96. Yeah. yeah it, it was big. It, it was big in the tourney. Mm-hmm. Remember all that like big country stuff? I was more pro, but like... I was deep into it, but yeah, I I got his rookie card. I know exactly what you're talking about. Look at that. Yeah. Well, it was funny that before I went to work at the police department, it was obvious who, where that name come from and stuff. And my wife being a police officer, we would be out somewhere in public and she'd hear somebody say, Hey, big country. Her hand automatically (laughs) went in her purse. (laughs) uh, Where where did you grow up? Uh, All over Texas. I was born in Waco, lived in Lubbock. Lived north side of Austin, went to school at Pflugerville a few years, moved back to Waco. Well, a little town outside of Waco, Hewitt. That's mm-hmm. where my grandfather was uh, chief of police. Gotcha, gotcha. And then, of course, lived in East Texas, working in prison, and been here since 90, late, uh, what, fall 94, I guess. My wife started the Austin Police Academy in January 95. So because you're a big white dude with a country draw, you're obviously a big country. Oh, I guess so. Seems easy enough. It seems right. like a stereotype. It and see, and see, and it doesn't even bother me. I'm like, okay. Well, fuck, man. The amount of times when I was playing in the NFL, I heard, uh, you going to let this big, or are you going to let this white motherfucker beat you? Was like, I mean, I heard that constantly. I used to hear that one all the time. And I'm like, man, if we, if we flip these words around, all of a sudden we're going to have a fucking fight. You know? I'll be like, oh, I don't give a fuck. You can call me a white motherfucker any day of the week. Yep. I've been called everything probably under the sun in my profession. In 29 years, there is no, I, I can't even come up with all the names I've been called. So I told my kids the same thing my parents told me. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you, me, hurt you unless we're in 2020 or 21 where words are weapons. And because 
your words cause me stress, and we've established that stress is damaging to my health. Now your words are weapons, which seems like a huge fucking problem in this world. I have nothing for that. Um, I like. I'll be fifty years old into this month. I just. I go with the yeah. uh, uh, Dalton from Roadhouse, where it's like, be cool. What if somebody calls me? Be a nice. Co- yeah. What does he say? He's like, what, yes. What if, uh, what if be- somebody calls my mom a whore? Is she? What if somebody <laughs> calls me a cocksucker? Are you? Like, it's it's like a that, fucking be nice. Yes, that's pretty much how I even like whenever I used to train police cadets. That was pretty much about the philosophy I used. Like, you know, they call you this. Are you? No. Okay, then. Just, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. The, uh, well, man. Uh, on that note, especially in the athletic side, I ever listened to an interview with Charles Barkley, and this stuck out. In one of his rookie years, uh, he, was, he had an opportunity to play – uh, 76ers, so the end of Dr. J's career, mm-hmm. and he would take stuff personally that was written about him in the press. So they travel around, play all the games, he's living his life, but would still rookie, so he's reading what people are saying about him, and then he gets pissed off, and Dr. J's simple was, is it true? And then he'd be like, no. So his perception like, became his reality until he realized, I understand who I am as a person, a player, and then anything that was written negative about him that wasn't true. And now we see it. I like him as an announcer yeah. following because he's honest towards these guys. And like he is, people pull his quotes and clips, but he's just being honest about their performance, how they act as a teammate. And he's just calling it out like he sees it because like that was his benefit as a professional. So uh, when I'm, and I've probably told the story on, uh, on the podcast, but when I was in playing for the Eagles, you know, Charles still had a house up on the main line and we used to see him out. And then we ended up hooking up with him and we would go out with him and he'd, we'd meet him at some spots and uh, actually had the opportunity to meet him out in Vegas, uh, which was a blast. We roll in and his wingman was Mr. Belding, who was uh, saved by the bill. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, Mr. Belding, the principal. He and Charles Barkley, that was his wingman. That's and the we greatest sh- party we've ever. We show up. <laughs> we're at like Ghost Bar up in the Palms, like the top, like you know, like totally VIP deal. We roll in, and it's Charles, and he's waiting on us, and we got like a bottle deal, and there's a bunch of girls, and Mr. Belding, and I'm like, Mr. B, and that's straight up how he fucking rolled. Like, 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 no, I, I can't even remember his name. He didn't, he just was like, um, you know, nobody knows. Um, I'm Mr. B. <laughs> I'm sure he changed his and, name like Apollo. And these Creed. girls are like, yeah, like calling him Mr. B. And dude, Charles, the cool thing about him is the dude that you see on TV is the same dude when we were having drinks. Like every time I met him, that is him. He's going to tell you how it is. If it's a poison pill or whatever, he's going to talk shit and he's got a good sense of humor. Yeah. Because I was always like, man, you're kind of a big motherfucker. He's like, I could have played tight end in the NFL. And he's like, well, problem is. 6'6", 280. Uh, he, he wasn't 6'6". He was shorter than oh, me. Oh, on the, the program he is. Oh, yeah. But he was probably every bit of 6'4", 6'5", but probably 250, 245, 250. He's probably 260, 270 now. But he was big. I mean, he w- easily could have played tight end. He goes, the problem is, you guys only play for a couple years. I played for what, like 20? Yeah. And he's time. like, and, I, and I, I was printing money. He's like, get the fuck out of here. He's, <laughs> like, he's like, you motherfuckers work too hard. <laughs> He's like, but I like to tell you, I could have done it. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. He's a good fucking dude. But I mean, he he's got a uh, a really good rapport, and uh, dude, I always appreciate his commentary. And the problem is, is uh, or not the problem, but the thing that's nice is a lot of times his contrary or commentary is contrary to what like the I guess you could say the present tide is happening and how things are are looking. I mean, he's 
shit, man, I appreciated his whole no, you know, no victim. 80, 84 to 99. Well, I, I view it as the, the word candor, and this is a term from Coach Greg Williams uh, and Harrison Bernstein in the, their book, uh, Everyday Coach. But candor is, it's direct, it's sincere. We're telling you this so you can make a change in your behavior or be aware. And that's, that's what I imagine a lot of the, I mean, talk about leadership. Do they teach leadership at the academy? Is it this direct or do leaders lead? Unfortunately, you don't even go to a leadership school until you become a supervisor. Why is that? I mean, um, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, think about we have, what, 330 million citizens in the, or like, um, not citizens, but people in this country. Think about how many law enforcement there are. How many interactions on a single day happen between civilians and law enforcement with 300 million people? I mean, 330 million people. I, uh, mean, I saw something the other day because somebody was breaking down some fallacies about police work. And I think they said there's this one deal. And I don't know how factual, but it said something like 375 million citizen interactions a day. Yeah. Okay. So well, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Some, it, it, they, the yeah, number, I don't know. The, the number is astronomical how many interactions we have with law enforcement and civilians, whether it be speeding tickets, you know, this, the whole deal. And like how many of those interactions go well and people go off and do the deal, uh, you know, is probably 379 or 374, 998 million. I mean, like, and it's pretty funny now with cell phone cameras, like I, I love these fucking dipshits that get pulled over and they have their cell phone camera out and they're obviously being morons and they don't understand the law and they think they do and they act fucking cunty and they're rude. And I like that the law enforcement officer is like, just sign the ticket. Just sign the ticket. If you don't sign the ticket, I got to arrest you. And like, nope. they, you know, oh, you can't do that. I'm like, yes, they do. The minute the lights go on, like, I mean, if, if we just, and, and I, I think a big part of this too is they pulled civics out of schools. Like, like I remember we had to take a civics which teaches you about government, local government. You learn mm -hmm. about the branches, this, you learn about law enforcement, how the whole thing works. Um, you know, it just, uh, like, I think if we just educated um, the people in school a little bit about like why, you know, how law enforcement works, how the city branches work. I mean, just a little bit of understanding of this thing instead of just looking at it like a black hole. I think it all starts at home, 100%. It all starts at home. I had, a, I had a, like an eight-year-old little kid one time. There's a community engagement project whenever I used to work like in this. It's kind of like a street crimes unit. And so we had to go over this little community engagement type deal. And a lot of the little kids always had stickers, you know, with a little badge on them. And they actually uh, had some little badge tattoos. So we passed those out. And this one little kid was walking by. He's kind of looking at us or whatever. And uh, I was like, hey, man, you want a sticker? And this kid straight told me, like, eight-year-old kid. I was like, no, I want your fucking sticker. So tried to kind of, you know, whatever. He goes, I don't even like you motherfuckers. This kid's like eight. It's like, why? Did something happen? Did the police officer, you know, do something to make you mad? No. My mama told me not to like y'all, so fuck y'all. I straight got cussed out by an eight-year-old kid. And he had zero reason. Zero. Other than what his mom told him. Other than what his mom told him, yeah. I mean, that's that's the sad thing is people are growing up with these negative biases and there's no reason for it. Well, I mean, it's just people are just poisoning their mind. Well, do you know where it started? Rodney King. I guarantee it did. So that guy comes out with a video camera. I mean, we didn't have cell phone cameras at the time. Mm -hmm. Make that grainy ass deal. And, uh, 
you know, shit. I mean, Rodney King was, you know, doing 120 miles an hour. I mean, if, if you look at, I mean, obviously he doesn't deserve to get fucking beat in the street like mm-hmm. with billy clubs with two hands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I mean, shit, the, the deal leading up, but I really think it was that moment where all of a sudden, like, they put it and they fucking blew that up on the TV. I mean, I grew up in L.A. I mean, when the riots started, the whole deal, and, you know, Reginald Denny gets pulled out of the car and fucking, you know. 92. 92, yeah. So, I mean, that stuff had always been like, I mean, shit, think about Rage Against the Machine. I mean, uh, um, you know, I mean, NWA. I mean, all that stuff was so prevalent in L.A., but, like, really that, like, Rodney King moment was, uh, I think, where, like, that put it at the forefront. Now, all of a sudden. You know, there's, there's a quote that I really like. And if everybody could kind of wrap their brain around this on all levels, I think it would, for everyone, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that all cops are perfect by no means. Everybody, they're human, just like anybody else. Sure. But seek first to understand, then to be understood. So if people would take the time to learn, because, you know, we are, police are the big topic for the last year, learn what we do, why we do it, how we do it, then you'd probably have a little understanding. Just go do a ride out. Anybody can go do a ride out with a cop. Yeah, go do, do a ride out. I've done it. Um, I have, I, I just cannot tell you the level of dedication that those people have to their job. Like, no shit. I don't give a shit. I don't care what anybody says. Somebody calls 911, that cop's going to show up and that cop will take a bullet for that citizen. And I don't, I don't, I don't know anybody else that would do that. So I can't imagine. I mean, just, I went through the all last year with all the riots and all the this and that and the other and everything else. And so, I mean, these guys now have a hell of a job. And the thing of it is, is no matter all this shit coming out, look at them. Still get up every day. What's the motivation? I really believe cops just want to help people. I mean, it sounds cliche. It sounds whatever. No, but they really do. I believe that. I mean, Cal, really do. Uh, like, you know, Callie and Lexi. I mean, I've known Callie for way before she was a police officer and like her ability to like help and like navigate and like want to like reach out and, you know, improve upon people's lives. Like I, I think that's the only reason, the only motivation. I mean, the, the present perception and the climate, I mean, there used to be maybe some, um, you know, like an allure of like how law enforcement and this and like, you know, this idea of like a, you know, white hat and the, you know, John Wayne riding up on the, on the horse to help the local town. But I mean, the perception, like, I, I don't know, you know, and I think a a lot of this is, uh, spun by our media. I don't understand what the motivation is other than maybe just sell more sensationalism and fucking more advertising. But like, there's really no benefit to painting law enforcement in this light because we're in this really fragile deal. And uh, we've talked about it on this podcast. I've mentioned it before. We have this thing called a social contract in this country. You're born to this country. As a citizen, you have to pay taxes. You have to obey laws. And there has to be people to enforce said law. And like when we get pulled over, there's a social contract that this person's coming up to me to help enforce this. And I have to be somewhat willing in this. It's kind of like, hey, like I could say, fuck you, I'm not paying your taxes. They're going to come and arrest me and eventually mm-hmm. like force me or take away my freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I going to do? Say so you guys are, you know, agents of tyranny and get into a fucking gun battle with you. I mean, that like, like that's the social contract of this thing. Yes. And the problem is, is if you erode the social contract where no longer is that person walking up to enforce the law, they're coming up to kill me. And now I'm fucking, you know, uh, you know, and I think it was John Locke said when the social contract no longer benefits both sides, it becomes null and void. I mean, these people are null and voiding the social contract. So now what are we in gun battles? Now, these, you know, 
Well, part of the big thing we discovered last year, there's a lot of people who are just paid to come here. We had people come from New York. Oh. Lots come from California. Dude, they were putting ads on Craigslist. Yes. Uh, paying we, protesters. We literally went one moment from officers being just cussed out, called everything that you wanted to say, hollered at, screamed at, stuff thrown at them on the front steps of the police station, the main police station on 35, uh-huh. to they were blocking a road. And some dude wasn't trying to have it and blew right on through and hit one of them. I kid you not. All the chanting, all the hollering, all the screaming stopped. And it was, cool. help us, help us. Come, please help us. I mean, like that. Well, They stopped hollering and chanting and begged us to come help their friend that got rent off by car. Like we, that. Well, you know the dude who uh, rolled up on that Uber driver with the AK-47? Yeah. And the guy pulled him out and plugged him. Uh, yeah. when they were at, like, if you see the video, they're screaming, get his license plate, call the police. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Like, like you, like you're out here protesting and doing this whole deal, but then something bad happens and now you want the police to something else that didn't really come to light either from that. And I don't want to beat this subject to the ground, but, um, just because I had somebody bring it up to me. There are those people, those, there was a caravan of officers, a van full of officers following that march for their protection. They did all that. That guy got shot. Those officers ran up there and tried to save his life. Tried to save the life of the people who said, you're a whatever, whatever, whatever. Just pick something and say it. Ran up there to save his life. Those protesters turned their cameras away from that person and was just like pointed toward the trees and something like, oh, why are you officers laughing at him? Why are you doing that? Save his life. Why are you laughing at him? Why? What's so funny? Blah, 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 blah. And those officers were literally over there giving first aid treatment to this guy trying to save his life, but they turned their phones away to a different direction, start hauling that stuff. That stuff got all the way to California uh, via Facebook because uh, I had a family member living in California whose husband was in the Marine Corps, and she brought it up. Wow. So um, when all that stuff was going down in Austin, my birthday is March 30th. Um, the day before my birthday, I drove down. Uh, I called Salt and Time, which is a pretty damn good butcher shop, and I called them, and I was like, hey, um, you know, and everything was just like lockdown started, but they were you know, kind of a weird deal. So I call them, and uh, – jump in my truck, speed down there, and that's off a of fifth. And uh, all of a sudden, I go in there, I get my stakes, I come out, and all of a sudden, I'm like stopped at the light where rated right at like the, you know, 35 kind of frontage road and mm-hmm. that uh, underpass. And uh, all of a sudden, I see all the protesters and all this shit going on. And uh, I was like, oh, shit. Like, I had completely, you know, we live out here in West Austin. Like, this, it's not really a big deal. Right. All of a sudden, I'm in the belly of the beast. But I grew up in L.A., it's not a big deal for me. I just roll my windows down and put a gun on the dash, and yeah. uh, uh, everybody's cool. And um, all of a sudden, I like kind of like go back and I see all the police in front of the police station. I go up and I come up on one of the back streets to try to get back on on this side of town. And all of a sudden, I'm at the stoplight, and this uh, like crew cab, half ton Ford beat to shit black truck pulls up, and it's literally right next to me. I look over, and there's six dudes sitting, three in the front, three in the back all dressed in black, hoods up, face masks, and sunglasses on, and pallets of bricks in the trunk, uh, in the bed. And like, I look over at them, and they look at me, and I was like, oh, fuck, what the hell? And they make a quick left. They stopped, and they all jumped out, and then another people came, and they started unloading all those bricks. And mm-hmm. I'm like, fuck, man, if this isn't strategically planned. Oh, all of it was, 100%. 100%. And, and one thing that, 
one thing I guess it gives, does give me a little peace is I'm, I still talk to a lot of cops and a lot of people on social media and stuff. And I talked to two cops in two different cities in Texas recently. And they were both like, dude, everything's cool. We're at like city loves us. This, that, and the other, the city, you know, the, our, the city government's behind us. The citizens are behind us, all that. So we kind of got a little shit show going here in Austin. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I don't say, and I, I tell people that I truly try to see the positive and everything that I can. Cause I used to be stupidly, uh, just crazy negative. And so trying to see the positive in it and just like, well, it, it gives me a little piece that it's like, Hey, this isn't everywhere. Yeah. You know, we, we, you see it here. Like say, and I live north of here. Um, and what did McConaughey all, say about Austin? It's a, uh, it's the marshmallow and a bowl of chili. No, the blueberry. Yeah, the blueberry and the bowl of chili. That's right. Yeah, I always thought. I like that. He, he's probably going to. He's probably going to be our governor, which I think is fucking cool. Well, Daisy, I am, I disagree. I need him to st- continue to make movies and media and stuff for me to consume. Yeah. Don't be my governor, because yeah. then you don't have time to make Hollywood stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. I like it. I like it. So, That's my stance. So uh, you made a good point. You said the, that you were extremely negative. Yes. So uh, like this is the interesting thing. And I think about this in law enforcement. Um, like you're around so much darkness. Like there's so much negativity and like, you know, uh, fucking sorrow. I mean, you're in the prison and everybody's there. I mean, you're talking about, you know, dudes executing their wife and this. I mean, like nobody's there for happy reasons. And like over time, like, um, you know, that negativity and that black and that just that fucking darkness just has to seep into you. And it probably makes a lot of people really fucking negative. So what was the transition to take you from negative to positive? I went through a lot of shit, a lot of shit. I had a coworker commit suicide. I was first one on the scene of a collision where another one of my coworkers had a fatality collision and killed somebody and the body was laying. I didn't expect to see the body was sitting laying there. Um, a lot of other stuff at work, a lot of trauma. Um, what made me see the light? Um, (laughs) honestly, my wife was tired of my shit straight up. Um, I was ridiculously negative. Um, I would say people that are addicted to negativity, um, like she'd tell me like, Hey, you need to go talk to somebody. Like I went through some serious shit. Um, and but she tells me like, Hey, you need to go talk to somebody. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to go talk to somebody. And I'm angry person, just like an alcoholic. Fuck you. I don't have a problem. And yeah. you know, leave what I'm not going to talk to some hippie, uh, head shrinker. It's a hundred percent. Some bullshit. Yeah. Because like as a cop, like your job is to fix everybody else's problems. Like you can fix somebody's problem like that. And, but we're the worst of fixing our own. Yeah. Because I, I don't, I don't want to call it, um, I don't know a good term for it. It's not a hero complex, but you're so used to. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Seeing some, somebody's having the worst day of their life and you go fix it and you make it better, but you don't know how to fix your own shit. So really, and uh, like I say, that's part of my deal. And that's even on my website that's coming out. Um, yeah. She got tired of my shit and uh, I'm a big believer. And now you can call it whatever you want to call it. Law of attraction. You find in life what you look for. Man, uh, um, you know, good attracts good, bad attracts yes. bad. And I had a really good friend of mine um, who was going through all this shit with me. I'd been in the job like at 23 years at that point. He's only like at 10. So he's having some anger issues too. You're not in anger, short temper or whatever. And so we were, t- we're like, hey, something's fucked up here. Something's wrong. How are we going to fix this? 
random ass. He was having breakfast at Kirby Lane Cafe up north. He was in uniform. He's working off duty job. This other dude sitting over there, just mind his own business. Clean cut guy, whatever. He looks over at my buddy. He's like, hey, man, you, you eating lunch by yourself? You eating by yourself? He goes, yeah. He goes, come on and join me. I'm just sitting, both of us eating by ourselves. Long story short, guy's kind of a life coach. Um, he's on, on social media and stuff. And uh, his name's Brian. But Brian, he ended up talking to him. And Brian's like, hey, dude, here, read this book. I think this will help you all out. And it was Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Mm. Um, it's all about neuroscience. And it's cool. I used, to, I, you know, I used to teach farms and I worked undercover and this and that and the other. And all of a sudden I'm reading books about neuroscience and stuff. And like m- m- my family said they could see the change in me as I was reading that book. It was super cool. So, yeah, once, and, and that's part of my mission that I'm on now that I'm retired is that uh, I saw that I, I was addicted to negativity. Your brain puts off a chemical response to your body for just conversation we're having, a cup of water that you're drinking, whatever. Sure. Um, cops are surrounded by negativity minimum of 40 hours a week. Minimum. You see the worst that life has to offer. Um, I can tell you some stories that just, it's all tear me up, tear me up to this day. Yeah. Things that I, I mean, stuff I saw just in my last year of working, you know, um, one incident was three months before I retired. But anyway, cops see the worst of the worst. And I used to tell people this, like, Hey, you know, you're, you know, you t- see these people that are negative and stuff and like, Hey man, tell them like, Hey, you're kind of, you realize that you're addicted to negativity. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I said, how about this? Here's a good test for you. One of your buddies sends you a text message. You read a text message. And it's a good friend of yours. You read his text message. You're like, Dude, being a smart ass, what's his problem? What, what, what's this dude's problem? You see him in person, there's nothing what you thought. Well, that's the problem is that there's no way to, uh, there's no ability to infer sarcasm or humor or like inference. Like there's nothing within like uh, text or social media or posts online. And so like, uh, and we deal with this all the time. Like I'll like, I'll say something and somebody get offended. I'm like, Say this out loud, imagining it in my voice. Yeah. Because if we were sitting here, you wouldn't be offended at anything I'd say. Another good example that any cop listening to this will, oh, it will hit home. So you have a, a shift party, we'll say. No, a shift get together, you know. Um, generally on your way there, your significant other or whatever you want to call it, says, hey, don't go off and leave me. I know all you cops are going to go off in the corner and talk by yourself. Don't leave me with all these other people. I don't know these other, these other people here. Okay, yeah, okay, honey, I won't do that. Ten minutes in, all the cops are hanging around the barbecue grill, out on the back patio, drinking beer. Everybody else is inside. Cops sitting around talking. It's like, hey, man, text. Man, dude, that arrest you got the other day? Man, that was badass. You got a bunch of dope, got some stolen guns, you know, convicted felon, blah, 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 blah. That's a good arrest. That's good police work. Yeah, then, hey, John, man, that, man, that call you had the other day, man, that was awesome, blah, 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 blah. Then you can see it just creep in. Somebody will go. They'll be talking about Salo, what have you did? And somebody will go, yeah, but hey, man, what's, that dude on that? what's the deal with that dude on that other shift? What was he doing? He just standing around with his thumb up his ass. What, what, what was he doing? And that right there sends a negativity through the roof. Give it 15 minutes, and they're talking shit all the way up to the mayor and city council mm. and how everybody hates cops. And, it's, and I tell them, it's like, have you ever done that? They're like, yeah. I'm like, and that's something me, whenever I was a supervisor in my last two years, I was a uh, corporal, um, I was very, very careful with my guys. I told them, no, we are not going to spend our time off talking trash. We had, a, we had a sergeant who ended up basically getting told it's time for you to retire. Yeah. He, was, he was something else. 
And after that happened, we had a shift party. And I was the acting sergeant for five months for that shift. Um, we had a shift party. And I texted them that afternoon. I said, we will not talk about the old sergeant. We will not consume our personal time with our families talking about work business. And that just comes back to leadership. That was something, the decision that I made, and I knew that was the healthiest for my guys. I don't want to sit around and waste my time talking about cop stuff. We're with our families, sure. you know? So, and that was a kind of a deal that I set, and my guys were very good about We didn't get into the, we didn't talk about the rumors that it worked, the whatever, somebody got fired for this or that or got in trouble. We didn't do none of that. You have to, that was something I was very, I tried to, as a leader, try to really protect my, uh, my guys from the negativity because it is horrible. I mean, you, especially this last year, all the stuff people were saying about you, I mean, how can you not be consumed with negativity? Well, I mean, how, um, how do people combat it? I mean, uh, I mean, cause life is what a- you're talking about. Doesn't just happen in law enforcement. No. Like I, I, I'll just give you a class example. This morning, um, I woke up uh, a lot of tears. I got twin twin girls who are nine years old. Uh, just drama. Like uh, um, you know, my daughter rides horses. Her and her little clique of friends they ride horses. Uh, like one of the girls isn't there, and then she gets text that the girls are talking about her, and then all of a sudden it's like the moms and this, and my wife's like, "What?" Like like we, we were talking about this morning. Just like and, cops, and, and she's like. She's like these, like like uh, one. She's like one. I don't want to be on this mom's text message thread. And she's like, I, like the fact that these girls have access to a phone to be able to do this stuff. Like they're almost like looking to cause this drama and being like, you guys are causing trouble. Like, why is it that we have this desire to like uh, feed into this? I mean, it it doesn't feel like it's a healthy deal. But it, I mean, is it? Is it a psychological deal where it like releases dopamine to be like, oh, I, oh, totally. I, Especially when you get addicted to it. It's like, like I used to smoke, I smoked a pack of cigarettes day for 20 years. And man, I've noticed this after I become cognizant of the negativity and all that kind of stuff and really understand what's going on in your body. I swear, like breaking my addiction to negativity, my body went through the same exact stuff as it did when I quit smoking. Really? It's just, yeah, it's a chemical response in your body. Same exact thing. I actually attribute my transition out of being such a negative person to being such a positive person, what helped me out was the fact that I was able to kick cigarettes back in 2009. I smoked, like I said, pack a day, pack a day for 20 years. That was the same exact thing because it's all the chemical response in your body, from your brain to your body, your body back to your brain, back and forth. Oh, yeah, it's like a, and you can see people, they'll sit there and talk, whatever, and then they'll, they'll find one little negative thing and they'll go after it. There's something else, uh, 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 something I heard before. There's no stronger bond between two people than to have a common enemy. Mm. So you think about that one little girl is not there. Somebody starts talking trash. Well, somebody else starts something. Oh, oh, oh we got a bond now. We don't like this girl. And then they just, it just, it's like a, it's like a forest fire. Uh, I, I, I tell my daughter all the time, um, low intelligent people talk about other people. I'm yes. trying to find that quote. Yeah, it's a quote like... Um, um, basically stupid people talk about people, intelligent people talk about, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like world events or what, uh, there's a good quote associated with it. Smart people talk about ideas, yeah. common people talk about things, mediocre people talk about people. Yeah. 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 So but, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, the, it, it's in the same deal where I'm like, this doesn't benefit anybody. And, uh, um, I'm like, dude, the, the way that you r- lose the right to be able to ride horses and hang out over here 
is by avoiding this. When all of a sudden I got to get involved at 7 a.m. on a Thursday <laughs> morning with my wife and we're having this conversation while I'm trying to fire up a coffee, I'm like, while well, somebody's bringing your gate at 6 a.m. an hour early. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was laying there uh, negotiating with my little boy uh, like what he was going to have for breakfast and it rang, it rang and I was like, just buzzed you in. You're like, should I come down to the house? I'm like, no, don't come down to the house, dude. I'm in like deep negotiation trying to convince my little yeah. boy to eat breakfast. But the thing, the thing that uh, life is all about perspective. I used to actually teach a block of mindset to the police cadets. Uh, they had their first week of 40-hour training of firearms. And I started this block of instruction when I went to work out there. Uh, the first, first hour to hour and a half every day was all mindset training. Um, I look back now, I've really been interested in everything with the mind, like Andrew Huberman's podcast. You know, he's a neurobiologist at Stanford mm-hmm. and stuff. I really have uh, got a big interest in that. And so the mindset stuff, what's well, the same thing with uh, the mindset with uh, the negativity? Life's about perspective. You can either be happy, you can be mad. It's your yeah. choice. And one of the things that I started, and I learned this from some, uh, picked up some stuff uh, from people on social media, uh, was my morning routine. Get up in the morning. I would check my phone just because I have a wife, two kids, and I had seven guys that work for me. No missed calls, no text messages. We're good. Send my phone to the kitchen island. Get up, go in there, fix my breakfast. Um, I do the same thing, man. I, I wake up, I check my phone, uh, looking for four alarm fires. Yeah. Like if there's a text or whatever, and I kind of just scan my emails real quick and make sure that like nothing's on fire. And at that point I just like, okay, good. I'll, now, now I got to go to the gym. Then I, after I, I'll sit down while I'm eating my breakfast, my brain's going, get done. I have a journal that I keep right beside, uh, near the breakfast table, pick it up. And I write, uh, at least five things I'm grateful for. Mm. Oh yeah, the, every uh, day. Uh, what, what is that? Uh, gratification of, or appreciation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I, I am grateful for. It. And I do at least five things, and it's crazy. The uh, it just starts my day on, on a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. And a lot of times, there's there, there's people know that that know that I do my morning routine, and because sometimes I'll text people, I'll something I'm thankful. I don't know for whatever somebody's, you know, whatever. Um, and I and I got to look in here about. Two or three weeks ago, I texted so many people. I went back. I actually texted seventeen people, and half of them probably knew. Oh, John's doing his morning routine, and I have more than once gotten a text back like, "Hey, you know, just wonder I was thinking about you. Have a good day. Have a good week. Blah 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 blah. Whatever." And uh, more than once, I've gotten a text back that just says, "John, I'm grateful for you too." That's nice. So, and I've had people tell me that like whenever I do that, some people's have been having like a bad day, and I text them that, and they're like wow, you changed my day. Like you just made it better. So not only am I making my day better, I have an opportunity to make somebody else's day better. So that's been huge for me. I mean, I get up every day. I go to, I get up in the morning, eat my breakfast, do my morning routine. I go to the gym. The guys that work the front desk at the gym, like it's almost a competition sometimes. Who's going to speak to who first? Cause I walked in, I walk in, I tell people, yeah, part of it helps that I'm retired now. And so having that stress off of my shoulders, but my morning routine that I do and the way that I like, I literally wake up every day uh, with a ray of sunshine coming out of my ass. That's great. <laughs> I mean, and, 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 and to be but where I was before. Con- but that's a conscious decision. Like you said, people have the decision to be happy and find the good. Um, I, you know, I, I was reading something on, uh, on like uh, depression and mindset and like, um, uh, you know, like purpose. And I was telling these guys uh, a couple weeks ago, I had this like 3 a.m. existential moment where I like woke up and I'm like, why are we here? What are we doing? Why, you know? And uh, so I started reading a bunch and I was like, you know, the 
like the fastest way to pull yourself out of anything is to not focus on yourself and focus on helping other people. Yes. And it's like, if you can go, you know, uh, you know, like, and I think what happens when people get depressed, they just kind of like turn everything in on themselves and, you know, why me and lot and this. And when you realize like the influence you have within the world and how you can go out and help people and even small, you know, uh, acts of gratitude, just helping somebody's day, all of a sudden it's like, recharging your battery and i think yes. what happens is like you know people get in this negative thing like i don't want to be around anybody i'm just going to go hide in my room and black you know this and you know i'm just gonna fucking retreat and all that does is just keep spinning you down the uh fucking whirlpool and it's like you got to pull yourself out you got to go help people you got to meet people and you got to see the goodness in this world and realize that you know hey man like we are not designed to be solemn creatures no. you know we're uh, uh you know we were uh you know we evolved within these small kind of community based deals and we have to get back out there and help people there's things that i've done that i've noticed that have and i know have made an impact on people it's funny uh i've heard somebody else talk about this uh andy frizzello mm-hmm. yeah. uh this is one of his pet peeves too the people who leave the isn't fuck- he the motherfucking ceo yes yeah, yeah. yes well, I, I like him that, I'm, I'm going to tell, uh, I, I listened to his podcast and I'm like, I don't think I can listen to this guy tell everybody how it is at all times. I'm like, he, he has some good stuff. Yeah. He, he has good motivations, um, whatever. But I have the, the, we actually share the same pet peeve and that's the people who leave the fucking shopping cart ah, in the middle of the fucking parking lot. Dude, that's my, uh, uh, fucking mark of human, of, of humanity yes. is, uh, <laughs> it's like you have to return your cart back to the fucking cart corral. Yeah. And what I do is I play cart bowling where I stand back as far as I can. I throw it as hard as I can. I try to blow up all the carts. And okay. uh, that's like my favorite. Like one of my, we go to uh, like um, uh, Costco. Mm-hmm. I like get the kids and I'm like, okay, set it up. And we set it up, we shoot them. And uh, no, we return carts because yes. that's the mark of humanity. Like yes. that's the fucking lowest level life form of the people that just leave the cart by the side of the car. And there's yeah. a lot in Austin. And I, and I like how Andy says too, says probably the same people that sit on their fucking cooler in front of their house in their driveway drinking a fucking Coors Light talking about how the world sucks and everybody hates them. It's like, yeah, probably because you suck because you left your shopping cart out in the middle. Of it. He said, it's just, it's just kind of a group of people. Yeah. And so I will literally, uh, not always, but sometimes if I have been, my wife and I were out not too long ago and, and uh, I stopped in the parking lot and I parked far out. It's like, what are you doing? There's a shopping cart right over there in yeah. the middle of the parking lot. Always pulling back. I stopped. And we parked right there, and I walked that shopping cart all yeah. the way back to the store. Yeah. And I know, and no, dude, that's I just, know for a fact that there's it's as many times I've done that, somebody has seen that, and I and I I guarantee you I made a positive influence on somebody. So I uh, the other day we were at uh, Whole Foods, and as I like parked the car, and the crowd was kind of far, and as I was walking. Uh, the kids were in the car. Uh, everything was loaded up. I would go to return the car, and somebody fucking honks at me because they're waiting on my spot. And I see them, and I see them honk, and they give me one of these, like, what are you doing? Like, And I went, I put the car, and then I went, I got three more carts. And I put them back, and my wife's like, what were you doing? I'm like, this fucking douchebag was uh, honking at me. Like, hurry up. Yeah, I'm being a good human, yeah, and, and they're just being an asshole in the parking spot. And uh, she, and like my wife's like, why do you always have to look for confrontation? I'm like, I didn't pull them out of the car and beat the fuck out of them, which is really what I would have liked to have done. <laughs> oh, no He's just gone over and been like, oh, you think you're going to hide behind that window? I'm going to shatter it, and I'm going to pull you out through your fucking window. Yes. And then I'm going <laughs> to stuff you in the shopping cart, and I'm going to play shopping cart bowling. Yes. It's like God seen that at Happy Gilmore. Uh, that would be uh, as you know, you're trying to do something good. Somebody honks and you're like, 
you just raised your hand to catch a beat. Now I'm going <laughs> to stuff you in this fucking shopping cart and I'm going to bowl you for the next day. Should have walked up to him and said, oh, I'm sorry, Dude, did you want the shopping cart? I, I post these on, uh, like I'll, I'll film the video and I'll post it on my Instagram stories of me like shopping cart bowling. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's gratifying. Yeah. It's, it, and like I say, just doing little things like that. People, it, life is about perspective. Do something good. And Do you think Andy Frisella actually goes to the supermarket? I bet you he's the type of guy that has all of his stuff delivered. He probably does because I saw him post a picture. He's in New York City. He probably heard that and he adopted it, but he seems like the type. I think he lives in Utah or something. No, he's in in St. Louis. He's in St. Louis. He probably gets all of his, his, uh, he he seems like the type of guy who's uh, too busy to go to the market, so he's got to get everything delivered. I don't know. I know he's talked several times about it because he's a big car guy. He's got something like 37 cars or something. He had a a blazer uh, built. Uh, His by, wife drives it, if I'm not uh, mistaken. Dude, he, uh, it's, I mean, it's linked front and rear. Um, dude, I, I watched the build. I'm trying to think of the guy that built it. It's like starts Matt, with a C. Yeah. He's up there. He's up there in St. Louis also. Is he in um, St. Louis? Something performance. Uh, dude, he built. Uh, I followed it on Instagram. I didn't know it was for Andy Fisella, um, but I followed the build because uh, you know I follow hashtags for like K5 and you know Blazer mm-hmm. and all. Because I got a 69 Blazer, and uh, dude, the. Uh, fab work was impeccable. I think they ran like a um, Craven uh, performance. Yeah. Craven performance. So I, I think they ran uh, I know it's got an LS three. I don't think it's uh, an LSA or a supercharger or a roots below or anything, but I mean the links, the way they brought the coilovers through, I mean it, the fucking work was impeccable. His 700 horsepower Chevelle too. Yeah. He's yeah, got some nice cars. He does. But I mean, I hear him talk about how, you know, he'll see people with, uh, like kids or whatever, like he'll stop and get gas or kill him, and he'll let them go over and sit in his car and look at it and stuff like that. He, uh, I don't know, the dude, the dude probably says drops as many f bombs as I do, and I think, and I think at the end of the day that he really wants to help. He'll already say one time if it, it, he would, it would be his dream to make every one of his employees a millionaire. What's that? Is that a McLaren? Yeah, he's got uh, he's got some badass cars. You know, I don't think he has that six, that uh, six wheel. Uh, duly anymore. So um, my buddy, who's uh, Joel from Overkill Racing, mm-hmm. who's um, he's the guy who was the fabricator that did all the dope uh, Diesel Brother stuff, and uh, he's like world class welder, world class fabricator. Um, he just built a six by six out of a Ford F four fifty. Nice. And I was up there she, over a year ago. Um, geez, yeah, it was well over a year ago when they were working on it, and like he built the entire truck out of SolidWorks which is like on a computer, like mm-hmm. this whole SolidWorks deal, had it all articulated and then basically sends it out. The whole thing comes back laser cut in these in like huge crates. And then they just basically accept, assemble it like a rector set. Like there's, nice. like he didn't have a bandsaw, it didn't have a grinder, like doesn't have like, uh, it, it's straight up just like assembling the most insane shit on frame tables. And um, I went up there and like, uh, I went welded with him for a couple days and just to try to get some pointers and improve my stuff and see how he did it. And like when I went in, I was like, man, you don't have a grinder or a bandsaw, none of that? He's like, I don't cut anything, dude. He's like, I designed this. It gets laser cut and shows up. And then we just have the best welders. And like, I'm not kidding you. Like, I like looked at this dude's welds and I was like, stacking dimes, dude. And uh, I'm, I'm a, you know, passable, decent welder. And like, I was like, holy shit, man, I got to up my game. So it's been, yeah. yeah I mean, the, He's I've, I've ne- like, if, if I was going to have anybody build me something, it would probably be that dude. I mean, it's, it's unreal. Yeah. Yeah, some nice stuff. Oh, yeah. No, he, and Andy's like, yeah, that, that uh, it's kind of a charcoal gray, I think. Yeah, beautiful. So it's either that or his, he has a 67 to 72 pickup. I can't remember. His wife drives one of those. Yeah. I think she might drive the truck. She might drive the truck. Yeah. yeah he's got some awesome cars. Let's, let's go back to leadership. 
uh, and cultural leadership, you had the opportunity in your position Mm -hmm. to change and determine how these guys are thinking. What is the culture outside of that? I'm sure you had leaders in your career that were not taking into consideration the human side of things. Can this, is this so effed up it can't be changed well or? you made a good change. point where um you said that you didn't even get any leadership training until you were a sergeant corporal or a corporal yeah, yeah. it becomes mandatory once you become a supervisor then they say then, then it's mandatory all of a sudden but you just have to go like so i don't know it's a but really, but, but isn't the goal to have everybody be a leader that would be my goal okay because as a police officer you're out leading groups of people sometime and just I have a philosophy about leadership. I don't think that you can, there's just, you can't, somebody can't read a book and be a leader because I think the number one thing to be a leader, you got to care about people. I heard that you could read a book on how to be an alpha. She is. Was that from Priscilla? No. Don't you remember that there was uh, God, who was the dude that wrote that book with Schwarzenegger? I met the dude. uh, He was a writer and he wrote a book about how to be an alpha. And I always thought it was hilarious when I met the guy. I'm like, if you got to write a book about how to fucking be an alpha, you're not an alpha. Yeah, you're not. If oh, somebody, there's a, there's a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. dude. Uh, I mean, shit. Mike Rashid, alpha as fuck. I mean, like you know, like it's just become this Some interesting of, branding of like alpha betas. I mean, which is even better because uh, um, from Revenge of the Nerds, remember the alpha betas? Like that's hilarious. And the omegas. Yeah. And uh, personally, I don't buy into any of that fucking shit. But I do like Revenge of the Nerds. But the leadership stuff, yeah, you we didn't go to you didn't go to a school until you promoted. Um, even still, I mean, there's there are people who have technically failed leadership school. But is that because they're just dickheads? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's really the only way you I fail leadership that, school if you're a well, dickhead. No, there 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 are a lot of people. Somebody and I was having a conversation about this recently. The people that not always, but. A lot of people who move up fast in their career and get to the higher positions, it's because they're narcissists. And do you think a narcissist makes a good leader? Hell no, they don't. Because they have to have that satisfaction about, I got to be better. I got to take this next test. I got to take this next test. Because that's that's the only place they get satisfaction in their life is by their position. They don't get satisfaction in their life like, I I don't remember if I posted my Instagram. It's on my website. One of my guys posted a deal about me on uh, Facebook the day after I retired. Yeah, it was it was freaking awesome. It oh. was awesome, um, and it was. So he didn't rat fuck you. No, no, he he did me really good. Matter nice. of fact, I wrote a blog post about it because it nice. reminded me a lot about an article that was written about my grandfather right after he passed away. Oh, that's great. So yeah, it was super awesome. But um, I can't remember what what else she was talking. about. No, you were talking about leadership. And, yeah, uh, it's uh, you. I just, I just, you have to care about people. You have to put your people first. All my guys that worked for me knew um, that they were the number one priority. I didn't care. I didn't care if I if I had to come in early, if I had to stay in late, stay late with them, whatever. It, it wasn't about me. It was about them. I was not there for them. They were not there for to help make my job better. I was there to make their job better. They were the ones out there doing all the work. And so, I mean, it worked out really. I had I had five super awesome dudes: Pruitt, Coliani. Miller Wilkes and AJ, holy cow! Those dudes, they killed it. They killed it. I mean, they 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 were just yeah, they were freaking awesome police officers, and they were just like little sponges. It was it was. Uh, I think many times they made me look a lot better than what I was 
but I gave them a lot. Um, there's a book, um, it's called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. It was written by Dr. Kevin Gill Martin. I think it was published in 02. He was a 20 year Tucson officer, police officer, and he was like a, has a PhD in criminal psychology, uh, I mean, uh, behavioral psychology or something. And he wrote this book. This book is like the roadmap of what your career is going to look like. I mean, it's every cop in the world should read that. I gave my, I gave every one of my guys that book, uh, before I retired. And I'm like, hey, you need to read this. This is this will show a long path because and it's cool because it comes from a guy that was a 20 year cop and it would show them. And it it really talks about all the nuances about being a police officer and the negative stuff you're going to go through and the personal stuff at home and this, that and the other. Um, but those dudes, they they were completely receptive to everything. But I mean, they knew there is no doubt in any of those those guys mind uh, that like. I gave a shit about those dudes on a personal level. Like I was that type of supervisor. I knew all my guys, their, their girlfriends, wives, kids, the whole nine yards. And that, I think that just comes from like, I'm just a genuine per, genuine person. who just genuinely cares about people. And I think that's the, that's the best leaders. Unfortunately, me, most of the leadership examples that I got, I got all the negative shit. And I was like, I'm not going to be like that. Not going to be like that. Not going to be like that. Not going to be like that whenever I promote it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, well, I mean, isn't that pretty standard? Like as you're, um, you know, I guess a young guy coming up and being led or, you know, being part of a team, you see the way like the leadership style and you're like, when I'm in a position of power, I will never act like that. Yeah. Like, um, and I, I mean, the, and I've, uh, I've told people this on the podcast, like you don't have to continue the cycle. Like, and, and we see this all the time where, you know, Hey, my father was an alcoholic and he beat us. So then I'm going to be an alcoholic and beat your kids. Or this, I mean, like a big thing we, uh, you know, like uh, I think when, um, you know, because you, I mean, you're obviously a little older than me, but like uh, we were raised like uh, there weren't a lot of hugs, you know, like it's something that like it was just kind of like I remember the first time I was probably in college when I hugged my dad. Like, and I remember he went to give me a handshake and I came and gave him a hug and he was like all awkward because it was like as a little kid, you're still (laughs) shaking your dad's hand. So like we didn't get a lot of hugs. So when I had kids um, and I I remember talking to my brother, he's like, uh, you know, um, he's like, make sure you hug the shit out of your kids because we didn't get a lot of hugs growing up and like never miss an opportunity. So I like hug my kids kind of like yes. every day, like give me a hug, not just like a little pat, but like a few seconds, like take a breath. And uh, that's something huge for me. Like give daddy a hug, you know, and uh, they, like, my, my daughter's like, why do we get so many hugs? I'm like, well, one, you need them. And it's psychology or it, it's science that the more hugs you get, the bigger you grow because they, they help you grow tall. And uh, I was like, and on top of it, daddy needs lots of hugs. Yes. And uh, they yes. were like, oh, so then they, it shipped them. Now, now they're helping to give hugs. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was like, because I didn't get a lot of hugs. I'm trying to make up for these hugs. So, like, I think, like, like leadership, um, you see these things happen and you either have the conscious or maybe it's a subconscious decision to just extend it and, like, hey, this is how I was raised. This is how I was brought into this. This is how my teeth were cut in this job. And this is how, you know, uh, like, you know, and you see this with strength coaching. Well, this is how I was fucking brought into this. This is how I cut my teeth. Sport coaching. So, sport coaching, everything. And like we know that it's right or wrong. And like we have the wherewithal through podcasts and reading and having intelligent conversations to know right from wrong. And you either have the opportunity to extend it as a parent, as a coach, as I mean, shit. Like I, I've told you guys stories about the shit that coaches have said to me. And I always thought, man, I don't ever want to be a coach. But then I realized like if I was a coach, I would never treat people like that. Yeah. So you- See, and that's, that was one of my objectives whenever um, 
I was a supervisor is that, like I said, I saw all that negative stuff, and I laid it out to my I, my guys knew all my story of all the negative shit I went through. This and I was very open with them. Um, they knew family was first, uh, first and foremost. I mean, I don't I don't I don't care what. I had one of my guys call me when I was hey yeah, uh, my wife's not feeling too good. Whatever. Like, well, what are you doing here? Go home. He goes, well, we're shorthanded. I'm like, shorthanded, too shorthanded for you. Go home, check on your wife and kids. No, we're not. Go turn your police car and get your ass at home. Um, and what a lot of people don't realize is that by me doing that stuff for my guys, my guys would have come to work on their deathbed for me, mm. you know? Um, but you have too many, well, you know, uh, well, my boss says we're supposed to have so many officers here tonight and this and that. What? No, there is nothing in this entire world, uh, more important than your family. And I, I, that's what I taught those guys. I, and I showed that, um, that's what you, this, the, the police work, it's, it's, uh, to quote somebody else, it's a career, not a crusade. Yeah. And a lot of people put all their eggs in the basket. And I was very, like I said, I was very open with my guys. I was trained in this job, like talking about old school. Um, if you went to a call and saw some really messed up shit, which you do, Whenever I was young in this profession, people were like, hey, if you showed any emotion, hey, what's the matter with you? Too big of a fucking pussy to do this job? Go to fucking Walmart. We don't need you around here. And then so what happened? We had officers go home drinking freaking cases of beer, bottles of liquor, and suck starting their pistols. Yeah. Trying to brush your teeth with a forty-five. Yeah. And so that was that was the that's how I changed the angle. I, like I told my guys, we had at my, at my uh, retirement uh, party. I told him, I said, if nothing else, I hope that I set example for y'all how to treat people. So it was good. I, it was it was probably the most re- being a supervisor, uh, being a leader was one of the most rewarding jobs in my entire career. My uh, my last two years was awesome, I guess, because hey, you get to sell somebody else your own program, you know, mm-hmm. and it worked out very, very well. So when so when you you sell your own program, it turns out to be a success, and it's really good. Yeah. Uh, what um, is there a way to? Uh, I mean, I I kind of as we've been talking about this, and I've been kind of meditating on this in anticipation for this podcast. I keep thinking like, is there a way to flip the script and to uh, have the pendulum swing back to where law enforcement is viewed as uh, not you know, jackboot thugs that are out there. If they pull you over, they're going to shoot you in the face. Like, I wonder, like, how do we change the perception back to, like, you know, uh, the 1950s with, you know, like the black and white where the officer pulls up and it's like, great to see you, Billy. How are you? Everything going good, George? And they drive away. Like, I, I keep thinking, like, what's the what's the catalyst? Because here's the deal. Like, um, I am not a fan of defunding the police. I mean, it's – and we, we talked about this off of the podcast um, – you're still getting your pension. You're still getting paid. Uh, you're still getting your benefits. Uh, there's still vehicles to drive. They still got to put gas in the cars. They still got to get put, you know, bullets, guns, boots, batons, all that stuff, and all those hard good items. When they start cutting budgets and defunding the police, what they're doing is they're cutting the training budgets, which is really the software which we need more of to make sure that we can do this, which uh, involves. You know, life coaching, you know, maybe some positivity training, changes of mindset, you know, being more proficient with, uh, you know, use of force, you know, like shit. Like if if these guys had some basic skills within jujitsu, I mean, how, you know, how far would this go? I mean, like I, I like it, 
it, it blows my mind because the municipalities are not going to cut the budgets for the hard goods. They're just cutting the budgets on the fucking software. What's, uh, what's funny while I laughed and you brought that up, I think at Austin, our DT section, our defensive tactics guys, we have two I know for sure, maybe another one, but we have several adjunct instructors as well. Probably at APD, we probably have a dozen legit Gracie black belts. Yeah. And one of them is one of the lead defensive tactics instructors. So, yeah. So, our officers get jujitsu like nobody's business. And, and they should. I mean, like nobody's. And the, and the cool thing about jujitsu is it's not, it's not strikes. It's not Muay Thai. You're not beating yeah. people in the face. Yeah. They teach you how to uh, get people in control. Yeah. We're, I felt very fortunate to, uh, honestly, to be an Austin police officer. Our level of training was ridiculous. Ridiculous. Um, the one thing you talk about more training that they need, um, like we had great farms training. We had great defensive tactics training. I don't know. I've had, shot with cops. Huh? I've, uh, I've shot with cops. Some, uh, uh, well, I feel like I'm only going to get shot if I zigzag. He's biased. He's the instructor. Uh, dude, no, I, I, no, dude, I'm, 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 I'm shot with I'm cops. Not gonna, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put, <laughs> I will say that when somebody tells me, Oh yeah, I got this buddy of mine's a cop's going to teach me how to shoot. And I'm like, oh, I can, oh. uh, dude, I, I, uh, I always say, Hey, if you don't want to get shot by a cop, run straight. <laughs> we, we, we did, we did for a few years have a program where 50 rounds a month, mandatory everybody come out and did training 50 rounds a month. And a we're all 50 rounds. Well, <laughs> that was mandatory. You'd be surprised. Most police departments, officers they, have, they, have to buy their own 50, ammo. Well, they shoot 50 rounds a year just for their yeah. qual. Well, you see, in Austin, if you come to the range every single day, you will get a minimum of 50 rounds. And I will tell you this after oh, I'm retired, I said whatever, I guess. There were people who come to the range regularly and trained. And, oh, yeah, they would get probably 200 rounds. Because, like, if you come out there and you're, like, legitimately trying to train and stuff, we made it worth your while to drive way out there to the middle of nowhere to our academy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, but like I said, we did a mandatory training for the entire department. Um, we had all kinds of schools. Like I was a rifle instructor, uh, the whole time I was out there, we had a, got a buddy of mine, the one who kind of went through my shit show with me. Uh, that dude, he's on SWAT now. He's like six foot one seventy five. He was probably about six foot one sixty then. That dude will, I have seen him run a pump shotgun faster than somebody read a Benelli. Yeah. That dude is, oh my, he, he brings sexy back with a shotgun. That dude, I sit there and watch him one day shot like 300 rounds. And because there's a push pull technique that you can use, a shotgun, yes. Oh my god, and a his, and, yes. Oh my god, well, if you do it right, there's a push pull technique, yeah. And this dude, like I said, he was not a big, he was not a big guy at all. And that dude would run a shotgun, like people would just stand around and stare at him whenever he was uh running the shotgun. Wow. That was awesome. So we had, we had very, very good quality. I had. I probably had close to a thousand hours of firearms and tactics training myself. Now, most of all that I went and got on my own and, you know, the city didn't pay for all that stuff, but we had excellent training. The one thing, the one thing that looking back that officers are not trained for, like I said, we did firearms training. We had rifle training. We did pistol, rifle, shotgun. Uh, we did active shooter training. We did this and that. We had all of that kind of stuff. The one training we didn't have was to teach you, uh, the, I guess the tra- the training about vicarious trauma, and vicarious trauma and dis- and uh, displaced responsibility are huge with police officers. Um, I told him about a story. Um, there was a call one night that uh, it was a we called it a missing hotshot. It was an eight year old autistic child got mm-hmm. out of the house. A few minutes later, 
Got a call before officers could even get there. Got a call of an auto pedestrian collision. We all knew what it was. Um, the officers went over there, and like I say, you could just tell everybody's by everybody's tone on the radio. They knew. Yeah. And one of the guys was like, "Hey, I'll go check it out." So he goes, he goes, he gets a description of the child and the person at the collision, and he comes over and he call and he comes up with his call sign on the radio, and uh, the dispatcher even paused. Then she's like, "Go ahead." And he paused. He's like, yeah, these two calls are related. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, no, 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 no. Sure enough, it was. Well, I had to go to the scene because my officers were there and it was time for us to get off. And so, and this was going to be a long crime scene kind of yeah. a deal. And so I had to get other officers, night shift officers, there to relieve my guys. One of the processes that I walked past the body four times. That, that's the shit they don't train you for. Yeah. And that's the stuff right there. Yeah. That's the catalyst for all of the negativity and the cynicism and the depression, the alcoholism, well, you know why the suicide. It's, it's easier to do, to cope with it that way than it is to cope with it the other way. And, and that's Which my point. Which is just bury it. And, and yeah, and that's my point as far as training. I've never in my life had any training. I did not hear the term vicarious trauma till three months before I retired. 29 years in this career. I did not hear that term until three months before I retired. You know, the, uh, the only time I've heard that um, was they were, I was reading a study on PTSD mm-hmm. and they were talking about levels of PTSD for soldiers that even had never gone outside the wire. So they had actually had, were having PTSD from stories that they had heard secondhand. So like that was the first time I heard the vicarious trauma was mm-hmm. through and, you know, cause the idea is, you know, when people think of PTSD, this person saw this fucking awful stuff and now they're having this emotional trauma. They were relating PTSD from people being in the situation, never seeing it, but hearing uh, the secondhand story, but being in the environment, you know, not within harm's way and having PTSD related uh, symptoms. And kind of on that topic, one of the, I had a guy that I worked with and he was in the military uh, for a while and he was a cop and he said being a cop was way harder for him this is his personal story um, so it was way harder for him because he said when he was in the military and he was deployed like you go outside the wire you do patrols do what you're going to do come back to the base he said it sucked because you're away from your family he said but we did have the internet and stuff like that you know we could email and so on and so forth he said you know it sucked being away from them but when you're done with doing what you're going to do for the day you go hit the gym with your boys you know, uh, take 15 scoops of pre-workout and <laughs> go yeah. do some CrossFit and whatever and play video games. Fucking get weird. Yeah, yeah exactly. And But he said... Not because then, of the pre-workout, but because of the CrossFit. Yes. <laughs> um, and so he said what was hard for him when he become a police officer, he said, he says, you know, if they got in a firefight or something like that, it's like, cool, go back to the base. You said, I'll talk to your boys. You process that shit. He said, being a cop. Say, for instance, that was a... Uh, that that call that I talked about. That sales a day shift officer, just to ease of con- ease of conversation. So he goes and works that call with a with a dead child. Okay, he has to work that. Well, he gets off work and he has to go then take little Johnny to baseball practice and little Sally to whatever softball practice. And he has to go out there and help coach and just act like the world's a fucking wonderful place. And look at me, I got my happy pants on. And he would. Three hours ago, he was dealing with a dead child. That's the shit that gets cops. 
And he said, he said, absolutely, it was hard for him. He said, no, when I was in the military, we go back to the base, we hang out. He said, yeah, it sucked being away from my family and uh, so on and so forth. He said, but being a cop, he said, I go see some fucked up shit. Now I got to go home and cut the grass and help, you know, little Johnny and Sally with their homework and go help coach sports and stuff like that, you know, hours after dealing with this stuff. So, yeah. And then uh, another big thing, too, the people don't understand that uh, the displaced responsibility Um Officer told me recently, uh, he worked a collision one time. The wife had died. The, they'd taken the wife out of the car. She was on the EMS, and he knew that she had died. She died in the, in, the, in the ambulance. He was talking with the husband. The husband did not know yet. And so he was having to sit there and try to calm this husband down. Everything's cool, but he knew that his wife was dead in that ambulance. Mm-hmm. And he said that uh, after everything got done on that scene, he went somewhere in the parking lot, uh, rolled up his windows, called his mom, and cried like a baby. So that's the, that's the shit people need to realize, you know, there's a lot of stuff and that's the stuff that police officers need training about. They tell you, I mean, we train people to no end with active shooter training, firearms training, tactics, um, all kinds of stuff. Never, ever got in. I don't remember ever getting an hour of training about how to deal with shit like that. How do you deal with that? I mean, like, I mean, get fucking um, angry and well, tell no, your wife wants to kick you out of the house. No, I'm, I'm just thinking like, um, you, to like, me? like, are there tools? Because I mean, like, as humans, we're not like the, in, I mean, most of the world is not innately set up to see that fucking level of awfulness. No. And maybe, I mean, maybe no. at one point in, uh, you know, I was thinking Jack London quote, like, we're only a few generations removed from drinking the, the, the blood of, uh, you know, drinking blood from skulls of our enemies. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, how we've kind of evolved, but like like that level of ugliness, like I don't know what the training is, more so than just like having somebody legitimate to talk to that's like, hey man, I'm not judging anybody. This is awful, but tell me what happened. We, just in the last couple of years, uh, me working, um, Lisa and Austin, they started a peer support team. And they're a good resource. People can go to them, and they have connections with counselors and this and that and the other, and uh, alcohol treatment facilities and all kinds of stuff. Um, that is an avenue. But of course, cops are the most cynical people in the world. They're like, "Oh no, no, you're gonna you're gonna go tell the chief, and they're gonna fire me." Although I have to say, there's a lot of stuff that leaks out a lot of police, places in the police department, internal affairs or this or that, the other, whatever. Not a single thing has ever leaked out of that peer support unit. And so that give officers an avenue uh, to start, at least give them somebody to go to to get them some help. You know, they were, they're connected with a lot of counselors and stuff like that. Um, then the department, uh, they got involved with this deal that's called, uh, what is it? First Responder Mental Health Program. And it's actually a grant-funded program. And it's really cool. I talked to the coordinator just the other day because in case I got to bring this up. Um, this can be set up in any city. But anyway, it's all grant funded. And officers, there is a, she has a Gmail address. And you email her with your your private address, email address. So there's no connection to the city, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you email her and they have people, they have uh, counselors and stuff like that throughout the city who are law enforcement friendly. And they actually do this at a discounted rate. And so they can get them help. That it's like I say, cops are the most skeptical people in the world. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna go tell the chief, and I'm gonna get fired, which well, you, you guys, is not how you, it you works. You guys have a pretty strong union, like teachers. It's pretty hard to fire a teacher and a cop. Well, cops have uh, Lisa and 
in Texas, most everybody has civil service. Yeah, and so you can't just yeah. fire somebody for. No, it's it's like trying to fire of you know in California to like fire a. a a teacher. I mean, and, and the the strength of the police unions is so fucking strong. Well, we got a we got a Austin's got a pretty good union. Um, I think they need to find a new direction. But um, we have it's just civil service. It's a it's a state thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so you have civil that's service a, protections. That's a real honeypot job. You should get into that. Start working in the unions. Everybody I know that was in the upper echelons of the unions. Like, like the NFL yeah, union, those people print fucking money. Yeah, but here's here's the problem. Here's the problem with me being in a union, is if somebody did something fucking stupid, I'm gonna tell you, sorry, bro, you did something stupid. I'm yeah. not carrying the torch for you. you well, know? I mean, but that's personal accountability, and that's what everybody everybody in the world needs that personal accountability. Yeah, yeah. Well, I um, I mean, it's uh, uh like I, I always think that most people know right from wrong. Uh, but then you also have to remember there's some bias with that because uh, we don't know how everybody grew up. We don't know how everybody was raised. I mean, like, you know, that a little eight-year-old kid come over and motherfucking you because his mom said, like, we don't know what led up to that right. and how he's influenced. Like, he thinks that's right, but fuck, he, like, as a parent, you shouldn't fucking put that in your kids. And it's, um, you know, and that's something I constantly think about. Like, everybody knows right from wrong, but what if you were never taught right from wrong and the only thing and what you thought was right was so fucked up that like this is your perception how far to fall. Yeah. You know? Everybody just has to be open-minded. Like say, seek first to understand, then to be understood. But how we can get the general public to do that, I have no idea. I just can tell you that police officers will, I don't know. Like say these guys, they, they put out so much out there. Like they take on responsibilities for things that happened that they had no idea no way no way to stop that thing from happening whatever bad deal it was or whatever but they take that on personally it's like i don't know these people are feels like if um to be a good cop you would probably need to be made a teflon where like nothing stuck like uh like you could just be like uh, let everything it, slide off your back yeah it just it just it like but then we lose that help that human element and you're just robocop Versus well, not necessarily. Then, then everything's very not, cut and dry and black and white, um, you know. My, but but the problem is, and and uh, this is what I think in, in law enforcement, like as long to be a good cop, you can't be black and white. You have to see no. nuance and gray. No, you can't. That was the problem in RoboCop. He was black and white. See, I'm, and and see, and I and I saw the big gray area all the time. I worked in the gray area all the time. You know, to in uh, this is just things I pass on to my guys. I told them stories like this. When I was a young patrol officer. I saw. I saw a guy, uh, he's driving a little Honda A2000, come off a of Koenig onto Lamar, and it was a little bit wet, and he kind of slid around a little bit. And so I did a U-turn, pulled him over in Dan's Hamburgers on North Lamar, and I saw when he passed by me, this guy was like old enough to be my dad. And whenever I, pulled, whenever I was pulling the parking lot, he was pulling in, his wife was giving him the business. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, no traffic, nothing. I pulled up beside the guy. He was kind of surprised. So I pulled up beside him. I rolled down my window. I said, sir? You're probably old enough to be my father, aren't you? He's like, yes, sir. And I looked over at his wife, and I said, you'll take care of this for me, won't you? She said, yes, sir, I will. I said, y'all be careful and have a good night, and turn around and drove off. That right there did more for that guy than any ticket that I could have ever yeah. written to him. But, you know, that's just, that's, that's just one person's perspective. That's what I did. Um, I got a couple questions. I've, I got pals that are police. 
And one interesting concept they've introduced is the broken uh, broken windows theory to me. In that if it looks like a dangerous or rundown place, it's most likely going to start to, to breed and seed crime. Mm-hmm. And what we've uh, witnessed from afar, because we're not in Austin, is uh, vagrant laws, so allowing people to just live and they just do got, their business. In they front just got of, repealed. Yeah. yeah so my yeah. thankfully. So uh, I don't understand why why it w- would be allowed in the first place. Like yes, it was repealed because well the but the broken windows is yeah. But here's we the allow problem. these people to live here. It starts to look dirty. And then crime will start to breed because. But it what just... do we do with those people? Like, I mean, here here's the issue, and this goes back uh, fucking years. So Ronald Reagan, when he came in, there was a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, mental health facilities, and they'd send these people off. Reagan actually defunded that and made all this stuff kind of outpatient. And the problem was there was no place to take these people anymore. So there's no, I mean, like those uh, a lot of the people living on the street, um, and I, I don't know, you would know better than me, are legitimately crazy people, schizophrenics, and drugs. So, like, they should be in some form of, like, house treatment. Some people, yes. When I worked in the jail, I talked to a guy that used to hang out on uh, 360 next to Barton Creek Mall. Mm-hmm. He, come, he, he always come to jail in the winter when it got cold. I mean, the dude was pretty smart. He worked at Intersection back in the 90s. He said he made three grand a month tax-free. And he said, I ain't got to pay tax to anybody. I ain't got to fuck with anybody. That was, his, that was why he did what he did. There was nothing wrong with that guy. There is many as people aren't. I talk to because okay, yeah, no, I talk no, to a lot of people. Fucking educate There's me. like a there's like a, a a publication put out, and they and I don't remember what the publication was, and they rank uh, homeless cities one through whatever, and these kids was what these kids that used to hang around the drag downtown Guad and all that stuff, they rode trains everywhere. Yeah, and I talked to some of them like we came to Austin because like they're homeless friendly like. We ain't trying to have a job. We ain't trying to. Yeah. There, there is so and so. Whenever you, whenever they put that out, I bet you, I, I bet you, the homeless population here probably quadrupled in a matter of a couple of months. Um, so what, there are some people who are like, what percentage would you say are legitimate crazy people that should be in some form of treatment? I have no. I did not come across that many that were legitimately crazy. Oh, okay. I mean, so when uh, um, when I lived in Berkeley. Uh, there was a ton of homeless people and they were absolutely batshit crazy. Like when we were encounter them and see them like, like walking around in circles, patting their heads. I mean, you know, like just complete fucking Maybe Berkeley was running tests on them. Maybe. Uh, they could be over there doing their acid Kool-Aid test. But, um, like there was, uh, you know, like the people that were living on the streets, like it was either drugs or some form of like mental illness. So I just kind of assume that like no, and, and maybe this is another one of my bias, I would assume that a, a, a healthy, mentally stable individual would not select that as their option. But maybe it's it's different. No, yeah, there there's some people who are, and yeah, you maybe you could call it a mental illness or like that one guy. He's like, I don't want to deal with people, and I don't want to pay taxes. I make three thousand dollars a month standing on a corner. And he said, and I don't really work that long and that hard. He just didn't. He just want to be a part of society. So. Um, I'd sell those people move to Alaska, fucking live out in the middle of nowhere. Oh yeah, well, Houston made panhandling illegal because there was numerous reports. That this dude sits on this stoplight, dude, and then they see him go to his car and just. Oh, go I saw home. people do Did that. Did you see the I guy saw in people Chicago do that several times? Did uh, there? There was a guy who panhandled outside of the Chicago Cubs games, 
and he was actually a fairly wealthy individual, like, um, you know, normal dude. He would just, like, go to his car, put on some crazy shit, go out there, panhandle, and he would make, like, 500 to to $1,000 every game. And then oh, he'd go get back in his car, and he would do it. He had a normal job and would leave and come do this. And then the news followed him. I think it was Chicago. Yeah, I think it was Chicago. And they followed him, and they totally busted him. They went to his place to work and the whole deal. I know. You I know? saw that more than once. Yeah. I saw a guy get into a brand new Hyundai with paper plates. No kidding. It was at Old Torf and 35 on the East Frontage. Um, he would work that intersection right there. Yeah. And he parked his car in the La Quinta parking lot. And I was sitting there watching one time. And he walked over. He went, matter of fact, he uh, went over to his car, sat down in it, pulled out his cooler, sat down, got a sandwich, chips, drink, made us a little lunch, got done with doing this, smoking a smoked a cigarette. Packed this stuff up, locked this car, and went back out on the intersection. Saw this stuff more than once. Wow. Yeah. And I, there are, I mean, like I say, don't, there are some people who legitimately do need help. Don't get me wrong. But just letting them run wild. Um, some of, There's some laws or there's a, a thought process now about um, giving people an option instead of jail time, giving them treatment. But the only problem is with this particular program, there's nothing to hold them accountable. Like, sure. well, you have to show up to treatment this day or whatever. And I was talking to some people actually who are in that treatment kind of a world and homeless, they're homeless advocates and all that kind of stuff. And they're not even for that stuff because they said it, you cannot, you, an addict has to be held accountable. If you don't hold them accountable is all you're doing is letting them commit a crime and letting them out of jail. Hmm. So that's not even, that's not even doing them any good. Wow. Yeah. It was, it, it, it seemed like the, the population, once the, Camping in public, whatever, got made oh, legal. I mean, it fucking exploded. It exploded. So all those people didn't just like crawl out of a gutter somewhere. They came to Austin because of that. Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, I I think the two things that probably keep the Austin uh, population a little low. One one was that probably freeze we had recently, and then also the extreme heat. I mean, shit, dude, it's a hundred degrees and eighty percent humidity. I mean, it's tough living outside in the tent. Yeah. But those dudes can do it. Well, that's because they like beef jerky. Like, like I mean, they're like COVID shit. Lick me in the mouth, that I'll be fine. I won't even cough. You ever read uh, David Sinclair's book Lifespan? Yeah. You know how he talks about basically yeah. the human body. If you if you treat it like a car, take your car, leave it parked in the garage, always detail it. It's going to last forever. Yeah. The human body, you do that's going to be worse. But if you constantly challenge the human body, but you know how do you build a muscle? You tear it apart yeah. and it heals itself. Same thing. That's, yeah. reason, that's the reason those people live so long. Yeah. They can live out there in the heat and 150 degrees and humidity and like, all right, whatever. Yeah. You know? They're, dude, they're fucking tougher than us. Yes. I'm like, uh, you know. like They're conditioned I'm, to it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm over here and I get gluten bomb and I feel sick though. Those people are fucking, uh, I survive on nothing but gluten and like, like they don't have any food allergies. Yes. Like, fuck, yes. like they are uh, fucking, the, I mean, yeah. Uh, like the end of the world happens. We're all dead. Those fucking people would be like, what are you talking about? This nuclear waste tastes delicious. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, they'll, they'll live forever, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good book. I just posted uh, a, uh, a talk he did where he was talking about um, NMM uh, supplement to, like, increase uh, brain cognition. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I know was uh, we had um, uh, Joe Dirt on the podcast for the Hyperbarics. And uh, we were just talking offline about. I want to see that. 
Oh yeah, no, we had pre- pretty much one of the foremost experts in in the world on hyperbarics on the Joe podcast. Joe Deturi, not Deturi. the David Spade character. Yeah, no, I, I just call him Joe oh, yes. Dirt because that's what he I, is in my I phone. Met, I met Joe at, yeah. At, yeah. at Doc's party. Yeah, yes. so he drank uh, lots of margaritas with that dude. He's a good fucking dude. Yeah, uh, he is. He's hilarious and smart. Yes. Like he's one of those like uh, evil geniuses. Yes. Uh, but we were um, as he was sending me a bunch of research and we were talking about hyperbarics. Uh, I remembered reading in Lifespan, so I started going through it and actually sent him a talk about like, hey, if we, you know, because my, my whole thing is like, what if you create, for the hyperbarics, what if you were to supplement and create a more advantageous environment for these things to work? So like I was like, hey, is there some like micronutrients? What do you think about IVs? What about this? What about this? And so I sent him that. That's how I, I clicked on. But I read that book, but I literally just about a week ago, like watched a, a whole bunch of TED Talks like I had just trying to hone some stuff in because that book is like this yes and to go through it i'm like fuck i ain't got time to go through see and i'm not that smart so i I listened to it on audio so i had to go through it real slow i probably had on like three quarter speed man i gotta (laughs) i gotta touch pages like i i don't mind getting in the car and listen to audio books and text i know you're like me like i want to feel the page and i want to go i want to see the words on all the notes i take during a podcast imagine when i'm reading a book yeah look like look at me i write in the margins too on all these books I'm now getting to where maybe I've settled down a bit since I've retired. Um, I'm getting to where I enjoy reading the book. I'm reading the book, um, How to Change Your Life by Michael Pollan. It's all about uh, psychedelic research. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the acid electric Kool-Aid test. Oh, my gosh. I, dude, you, you never heard that one? Uh, dude, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty famous one where they were treating depression with, uh, with acid. And they were, I think it was at Berkeley uh, or San, Francisco, right. San Francisco, <laughs> but like the idea of using MDMA, which was, was developed for that in, uh, you know, uh, was psilocybin, you know, that way you can go do your ayahuasca and, you know, <laughs> pretend Some you're zero to ayahuasca. I think that's the, stupidest. well, that's how you become uh, the motherfucking CEO is you got to go do plant-based medicine, do ayahuasca, and then you become the CEO. I got good news. Uh, What's his face ended the MFCEO podcast, so it's open. I can just take it and run with it now. And he he finished his his uh, the uh, new sil- the new is the real the, the new one. Andy Frizzella did new that stuff. No, I know. Oh. I was fucking kidding. Now, now Aubrey Marcus is a whole other story. That's oh, yeah. where I first learned about it. Oh. What? No, uh, Frizzella's new podcast real is AF. like real AF pod. Yeah. So I'm just going to take over the MFCEO and run with it. Yeah. Well, try and should. stop me, Andy. Yeah, I think you should. But that uh, on that topic, um, MDMA, uh, somebody sent me an article the other day, MDMA could get approved as early as 2022. Um, the stuff that I've seen, okay, we can come. Like FDA approval? Yes. Wow. They have been doing uh, Roland, uh, Roland Griffin or Roland Griffiths. I think it's Griffin. Uh, has been doing, he was on uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast. Is, uh, it, is that the black dude? With no, the dreads? no. That, um, that was on Joe. Remember the one we listened to with Joe Rogan, with yeah, the with the black. I can't uh, remember. No, Ro- he's Roland, not American. Roland no, Griffin's no. An he's old... American, but he lives in Amsterdam or Germany or Sounds whatever. Right. And yeah, the guy's like the number one drug researcher, and was like, "Oh, drugs are epic." And we were like, "Holy shit!" Now Roland Griffin, he's an old dude. He's been doing uh, research with John Hopkins for uh, twenty years or a little or a little longer. Mm. On um, MDMA, MDMA. Uh, they've done a lot. Of, the most, the stuff I've read about right now is uh, psilocybin. Yeah. And the thing about psilocybin is, it's AKA not addictive. Mushrooms. Yes, it's not addictive. They've had things. Uh, something you'll soon find out. Uh, teenage girls. Uh, there's a lot of bullying that goes on, 
And due to that, there has been a rise in teen and uh, teenage girl suicides. So I figured this out, right? Like, uh, because a lot of it's cyberbullying. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you just get rid of the internet. You turn yes. off the Wi-Fi. There you go. And then it goes but then away. It'll, but then it'll happen and, at school and, then and it, everything else. Then you take them to jujitsu. And my thing is, uh, if somebody's fucking with you and you choke them out, call me. I'll come. I'll if they suspend you, whatever. We'll find you a new school. Don't yes. worry. Like, uh, it's the the, yes. uh, the age old Doris Wellborn. If you're gonna fight, you better win. Because we don't raise losers, and fucking if you lose, you can't come home. There you go. So like that was how we were raised, and so if I I remember getting in a fight, and people were like, "Man, you fought hard." I'm like, "Well, yeah, I fucking if I do, I don't get to go home because we don't fucking like losers in my family." Yeah. But my mom always said she's like, "I'll never uh, if you get in a fight, like I'm never going to be mad at you about it. I'm only going to be mad if you lose." And uh, you know that's what I told my daughters, and they looked at me like I was crazy. But, but I was like, they, "It's a different time." I was raised in the '80s. They I read one deal. That they actually, matter of fact, I heard on a podcast, uh, Dr. Dan Engel. He's here in Austin yeah, now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He was on, because him and Aubrey are good buddies, and then, of course, Aubrey's tied to Joe Rogan. Um, well, yeah, the uh, you know the connection there, the mm-hmm. flashlight. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that His was. His dad, Aubrey's dad, is a retired LAPD cop, and yeah, he was the who, one that founded that. Yeah, he, he founded it. And of then, course a cop. Yeah. And then funded all this. Yeah, you of course. Know? So, yeah. yeah. So Aubrey Marcus is talking about pulling himself by the bootstraps, and we heard him talk. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Isn't your dad like a sex toy maker? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it's, made, it's uh, right off of Burleson Road here in Austin. And they, they were Rogan's uh, original uh, big sponsor. Yes. Engel yeah. um, and Aubrey were on Rogan's podcast about five years ago, and Engel was talking about this stuff. Like they've had, and I've read about this too, they've had an 85% success rate of getting people off of nicotine, cigarettes, one microdose of psilocybin. Wow. Um, and I think after like 12 years, they'd followed up. So I had 67% of people off cigarettes. I, after I smoked a pack a day for 20 years, I know how hard that shit is quitting. If somebody give me a microdose of psilocybin and say, you're good, sign me up. So, uh, when you're under the influence of the psilocybin, do they go in there and fucking, you know, chant and, and you no, know. they don't do nothing. They put you on a couch and, uh, the guy was actually talking about this on, uh, Peterson's podcast. I've read it. It's in that book too. Apparently, people in that space, the How to Change Your Mind by Michael Poland is like the book that they all read. Yeah. And so that's why I'm reading that one. Um, apparently, they'll tell you, hey, go lay down, lay on the couch, chill out. And they just kind of coach you. They're like, hey, if you, one of the things I've gotten from reading this stuff, they say, like, if you see a door, go through it. Mm. Yeah. If you kind of see something seems a little, ah, uh, just do it. And like, they've tested this with people that are terminally ill with cancer. And after having a magical experience on psilocybin, they're no longer uh, afraid to die. Like, hey, cool. Yeah, it's but the 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 work that I'm interested in it for is for people with extreme uh, PTSD, depression, all that stuff. It's had ridiculous, ridiculous successful results. Man, and I, if 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 I could get if I could if they can make it legal and a cop, it seems like the protocol that. Um, seems what the protocol is, is a, a intensive counseling session, microdose, come back again, intensive counseling session, microdose, you do that three times. Now, granted, you have to do some work on your own. Sure. But if I can have a cop do that and him not suck start his fucking pistol, yeah, we're good to go. Well, uh, I think the MDMA stuff's really interesting, seeing as that's the drug that's in ecstasy. And when mm-hmm. I used to work those illegal raves in San Francisco and I'd see those kids dance, they all look like they were having a great fucking time. Oh, yeah. I was like, man, these kids are like out there like dancing until they just fucking melt down. I'm like, these kids look like they're fucking having a great time over there giving each other back rubs. I'm like, that doesn't seem like a bad deal. Yes. Uh, back rubs? Is that what you call it now, John? <laughs> Dude, 
Uh, dude, I, I like uh, <laughs> those kids, dude. I, I'd like, I watch this shit and I'd be like, man, these kids are fucking crazy. What the fuck are they doing? They have uh, ketamine is available now. What's yeah, um, uh, Special K, it's a actual tranquilizer um, that they use on horses uh, or in, in cats and, and animals, and it comes in a liquid, and I only know this because uh, I watched the whole thing on it, but what they end up doing is they end up basically turning it into a powder, and then they, they snort it, and uh, like... This is legal? Well, uh, no, it's super illegal, but the way that I knew about it was some of those kids that passed out. Uh, they called it, they were stuck in a K-hole and this guy's like, oh, that kid's in a K-hole. I'm like, what the fuck is a K-hole? He's like, special K. I'm like, what the fuck is special K to cereal? He's like, no, ketamine. And then I got a little bit of education from these drug dealers that they basically take this liquid, they turn it into a, somehow cook, bring it down into a powder and then these kids take it and they basically like, your body doesn't move but your brain is still, they're like stuck but their brain is still moving well, into another of fucking course it's universe. A, of course, fuck? it's a more of a scientific dose, though, that if you get it for treatment. But yeah, it's actually legal. And I haven't read that much about ketamine either. The one thing that was explained to me is like, like me, I was in a circle of negativity. It's like you're on a NASCAR track going So left you want to get stuck in a K-hole and get out of it? Well, they say, they say that what it'll, it'll do is say like you're stuck in a circle. And I imagine like I was with my negativity and all that stuff. Like, like say, like you're stuck on a NASCAR track, just going one direction, just going and go, and it'll throw you off of that loop and help you to reset. Wow. Yeah, they've had they've had really successful uh, stuff with that for people with depression, PTSD. Like I say, all the shit the cops deal with. I mean, but, we are. Uh, I think they said I've read something. I don't remember the exact number. Something like the average citizen is witnesses like maybe fifty critical incidents in their entire life, and a cop witnesses like five thousand in yeah. their career. But you were willing to change. So yes. it's not just doing these things. Yes. You were ready. Yes. And you willingly did this job. It's not like you got drafted into it. Like yes. this was something that, you know, like oh, that. Soldier, and, yeah. And that's something I think about with law enforcement. People select this life. So I always wonder, like, what is it about the, like, the allure of law enforcement where people select this and then they get into it? Because, I mean, a lot of cops, like you said, get negative. I'm like, but you chose this life. And that's the thing. If I, one day I hope to have the money and I will fund the research. Um, like I, I trained, I was a firearms and tactics instructor at the police academy, promoted from there and went back to patrol as a patrol supervisor. So there was all these young cops I had trained that I see now at the substation. And I took note that I would see these guys. I remember on the police academy, they're all bright eyed, bush tail, going to go save the world. Two years on the street, they get out of their car, they walk across the parking lot going into the substation, they stare at the top of their shoes the whole way there. Three, four, five years, they're divorced. They're alcoholics. I mean, we saw the same thing with the firemen. We had, um, who was the, the fire? Uh, uh, Annette Zapp. Yeah, we had Annette Zapp on, who was a uh, um, Chicago fireman. Um, ended up, uh, like, starting a whole deal for, like, the same deal. Uh-huh. Where the, the firemen ended up having, like, the exact same things, alcoholism, all this. And I, I just thought firemen just hung around and fucking had chili cook-offs all day. No. I at least in Austin... Ice cream is to the firemen like donuts are to cops. Fire I ice thought, cream. I, I, Fire SQ Fitness is Annette's I company. thought that they just like had like a daily chili cook-off and they just ate chili all well, night. Well, no, they eat ice cream. But, you know, like they say, cops, you do write-outs. Firemen, you do a sleepover. <laughs> <laughs> so I this rivalry is real. Yes, it's real. Uh, I but love, don't, but I, don't get me wrong. I love my firemen. Those dudes are, they're, they're as much like us as they could be. Yeah. I yeah. love they are, the, some fuck, ex- they are some good dudes. A opening, lot of mustaches. A l- yes. Opening scene of Departed, 
when they're playing rugby against each other. And Matt Damon, I just remember him walking off. It's like, you fucking quiz. Why don't you go save a cat, have a tree or something? Just oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. Target shit. Yeah, oh, yeah, totally. There was, I saw a picture of somebody uh, on social media somewhere. Somebody took one of the like, little road construction, little light-up boards, and they put it in front of a fire station and said, shh, firemen are snapping. Yeah. How many hours a day do those guys get to sleep? At least 10, 12, 15 hours? Depends. Some of them, the station that they work at is really, really busy, and yeah, some yeah. of them it's really, really slow. So, yeah. yeah. Well, like, do you remember when the the guys up the road came out to put out my uh, uh, my bonfire? Six, uh, six. Yeah, of them? like literally, they show up with like three trucks and like twenty dudes. I'm like, slow day, huh? And then they <laughs> fuck. So like, we we um uh like I have a burn pile, and uh, when we first got here, we used to burn, and there was never any issue. And then all of a sudden, we you know we we go to burn, and all the fucking people at the school and now the neighborhoods which were here which weren't here when we moved in. Uh, are from California, and when people in California see smoke, they fucking freak out because there's forest fires. Oh, yeah. So everybody started calling them. So these guys, like, show up. They're ready to ram my gate and the whole deal. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we're out there. I mean, it's totally fine. They, like, back up, and they, like, fucking hose it down with all these chemicals. I'm like, what the fuck? And they're like, it's these California people. And, and, then, and then they made me buy a $50 permit. I'm like, fuck. I've been burning out here for years, and, like, now all of a sudden I got to buy a permit? Fucking. Holy shit. Yeah. Try to jack me. I'm like, this is going to your chili cook-off fund, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, tell them it's going to their ice cream fund. Uh, okay, oh, ice man. cream. Yes. Shit. I do love firefighter movies and cop movies. Like, which, like which one? Like uh, Backdraft? Backdraft? Starring Kurt Russell? The, the best cop movie ever, most realistic, is End of Watch. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. Yes, Gyllenhaal is. is awesome. The way that those two dudes in that car talk shit to each other all day... That is 100%. I like Training Day because uh, I grew up in L.A. and I remember when Rampart and that whole deal happened Mm -hmm. where they basically were going out and like the the gang members and the fucking thugs were joining the police department going through the the academy and the whole deal and then they were on the street and they just became the worst part of the gang. Is that what happened? Yeah, so so what happened was – uh, the whole rampart thing was these uh, fucking kids from the neighborhood went out and they all became police officers with the idea of like we're going to go on the other side and then they became the fucking enforcers and then rampart came in and they were like hey let's fight fire with fire and these dudes ended up becoming the fucking wor- I mean uh, you know just executioners of this thing and that whole deal if you put in rampart LA uh, you'll read a little history on it but that was like took uh, you know Chief Gates down that whole deal because they were like hey let's fight fire with fire these dudes were out there doing drug deals, fucking drive-by shootings, the whole deal. Holy! And so, crap. training training day that movie with uh, Denzel was based off of the Rampart deal. I do want his Monte Carlo. Yeah, it was badass. Yeah, he's he's over there on three on uh, uh, three wall motion and switches. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, end of watch is probably the most realistic. Cop Dude, movie. if you ever read any of that, uh, I'm in. Uh, uh, I'm in the Wikipedia. Chief Gates and, and the Rampart deal. That's that's what I'm gonna do for lunch. It's ni- 1997 to 98. Yep. I didn't even know this. Well, I read an article in something about it, but I didn't. I oh, didn't yeah. know. Th- I didn't realize that it well, was. This, yeah, this is an LA thing. So yeah. you know, my dad, who was a uh, uh, DA and then a criminal defense attorney for 50 plus years. I mean, he, in LA, my dad grew up in Culver City and the whole deal. So I remember. Um, what's hilarious is my dad was on a panel where you know the. Let me see. Like L.A. County and LA, and California was pretty sharp with that deal, where they used to have um, uh, some really gnarly felonies come through, and a lot of these guys didn't have money to hire uh, lawyers. 
So the you know, the, but the PD is a you know the public defender isn't qualified to do this type of fucking felony stuff. So hmm. what they would do is they had a panel of like really high end like criminal defense like felony guys like my dad, my brother does it too. And what they would do is they would hire uh, the state or the county, whatever, would hire these high priced attorneys to come in because they realized it would allow them to save money because it would get done the first time right and then they wouldn't end up on appeal. So the problem is that the public defenders weren't skilled enough and then they would go and fuck it up uh, and the DA would, you know, a bunch of problems and then they would just, it would just turn into a clusterfuck. So they figured out to streamline this thing, let's actually bring in some high-priced, really good attorneys to do this so my dad and my brother will get appointed on these cases. And uh, my dad represented some like, I mean, he would come home with all this gang stuff. And so, uh, like, I mean, dude, like, I mean. Do you have any shady folks knocking your door in the house? Uh, my, my dad was representing a, a fucking pretty legit dude on like his third. Uh, he was on a case. I mean, the guy had already had three uh, life sentences on him. He was on his fourth. And my dad was representing him. And the guy basically smuggled a fucking razor in his fucking safe, in his butthole. In right. his prison wallet. In his prison wallet, so like a fucking razor blade. Is a ecstasy um, hole. <laughs> uh, basically, put it here in his finger. Leaned over to ask my dad a question, and fucking cut him on the nose and the face. And my and all of a sudden, like I mean, dude, like my dad's representing this guy, and the guy was a fucking asshole. Um, I forgot what his what the guy's name was. Um, it was like Little Joker or something. And basically, like my mom calls my I'm playing in the NFL, and my dad fucking cut his nose and cut his face. And what they were worried about is that they would have little like, HIV or something, something yeah. on there. Uh, but he ended up being okay. I mean, so like my dad had like he there he was on a pretty big uh, murder case that was a drug thing. A guy named Mike C. Wright, and I remember he was on that case. And my dad, I mean, did some really really high profile. My brother's on a, a Dateline a whole bunch. Like uh, he does all that big stuff in Orange County. So because of that, you know, you grew up in a family of attorneys, like my dad knew these cops, like knew that area, had represented people and the whole deal. And I remember when that hit, he was like, holy shit, dude, these guys were basically like the Crips and the Bloods, but wearing police badges. And they had been badged up into this, uh, um, you know, Rampart district to go in and basically fight fire with fire. And it's like, if they're going to fucking drive by and they're going to sell drugs, we're going to drive by and sell drugs. And that was the whole... That's wild. Yeah. But like training day, there was... Uh, truth within them. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. How are your relationship with prosecutors and the like the the justice side? I never had any really. I mean, I saw a lot of stuff that I I don't I'm, I don't have a lot of faith in the criminal justice system. Yeah, it's a uh, money it's talks a, and bullshit walks. Well, I mean, uh, um, you know, Jose Garcia or Garza. Is the yeah. DA here in, in Austin, uh, which is unfortunate. I voted against him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I mean, he's, you know, not allowing. I mean, here's the deal. If, uh, if you know, law enforcement is designed to, you know, investigate and make arrests, and if you guys make arrests and bring people in, if the prosecutor doesn't have, you know, there's no vested interest in actually prosecuting people, then it's just a fucking revolving door. I spoke to... A minority police officer about this. I was like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" I said, "What do you What do you think that their motives are?" He goes, "Oh, they're just trying to get votes from the minority population." I was like, "Really?" I said, "Well, how do you feel about that?" Because you're a cop. He's like, "You know," he goes, "I understand." You know, the people on one side go, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, good yeah, let these people out of jail. Maybe that could be my cousin. Maybe he'll let them out of jail, whatever." And so some of those people are for it. He said, "But if you really think about it, you're really not helping anybody." He said, "They're really not helping." 
these people. It's like a f- a fake, a facade that they're putting on. That, oh, we really care about you. It's like, no. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, they don't give a fuck. They care about power. If, yeah, exactly. They just care about power. Because if they truly cared about somebody, just like we do our kids, we hold them accountable. Yeah. Because it teaches them a lesson. And, you know, you touch your finger to the stove and it's hot and you get burned, you don't do it again. Well, you know? All you got to do is watch Caesar Milan and realize that dogs that are raised with discipline are much happier dogs than the dogs that aren't raised. All those dogs that come in that he has to rehab are all just fucking let to run wild without discipline, no rules. He's, no. he's training the owners, John. Dude, uh, wa- watching Caesar Milan was like the best thing you could do in terms of having kids. I'm like, hey, set a, <laughs> set a schedule, make sure they get plenty of exercise, and make sure that you're ironclad in, in, uh, in, 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 like, in your rules. Like, don't be a dick, but don't bend. It's funny you say that because somebody told me this years ago, and my wife and I have had many conversations about this. You see somebody who has pets before they have children, the way that their pets act, their children will act the same way. So if they got a bunch of badass little barking, yapping dogs that run around and, you know, act like a bunch of little crackheads, that's how their kids are going to act. And sure enough, I've seen that play out more than once. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, did you have pets? Yes. And, I mean, you have two Aggies. Yes. So I have worked. two. Yeah, my kids are way smarter than I am. My kids are freaking <laughs> awesome. My favorite is uh, when we leave the office. Is I like if my dogs are out and then text, texting the guys are walking up to the cars. My fucking dogs are always out there barking. I'm always like, I was like, go get them, and all they're gonna do is come and lick you to death. Yeah. They just yeah. want attention. They bark for the li- the the licks. The yeah, pets. Yeah, yeah they yeah. go over there, and those dogs will lick you to death. Yeah. So what's the um, you know, and I know we were talking earlier uh, about like, is there a solution? Is there a way through this? I mean, is it educating the people? I mean, like how, like how do, like what do we do to get the pendulum to shift? Is there anything that we can do uh, as individuals? I mean, obviously go out and you know realize law enforcement are humans too and talk. Like whenever I pull up on a cop, I always like roll my window down and give them like we're giving the thumbs up. I'm like, how's it going today? You know, and they're usually fucking around on their phones. And, that uh, that honestly will probably make somebody's day these days. Yeah, I'm yeah, always like, day. I'm more, yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I pulled up the other day and the guy rolled it, uh, rolled the window down. I'm like, hey, what's, I, and I joked, I was like, hey, quit fucking around on your phone. And he like looked up, I'm like, how's your day going? He's like, pretty good. And he, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to jump into politics, but the numbers are there. The numbers are there. Nobody, cops didn't become whatever you want to call it in the four years that Trump was in president. You had a Democrat in office for eight years before that. If if cops had been rogue, it we would have thought that it would have been well, handled right. I've I've always said I think uh, Obama was by far our most divisive president, and when he stood up there, I mean uh, that Trayvon Martin thing was a bad deal. That uh, I can't remember the dude's name, George. Um, Fuck, who was the guy with the Trayvon Martin where he beat him up? Zimmerman. Yeah, Zimmerman. Uh, that whole deal. That's the one in Florida. Yeah, that was in Florida. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, that was Trayvon Martin. Um, but that whole deal where Obama got it. No, no, no. The Trayvon Mark, look that up. I can't remember. Uh, but I remember Obama's statement of like, you know, that looks like my son. And I remember thinking like, man, as a president of the United States, like the idea is up to be like bi- bipartisan and, you know, support and this. And I, th- I think that. Yeah, it was Zimmerman. Yeah, that was Zimmerman. But that whole thing with Trayvon Martin, like that was where all of a sudden Obama got up and it was the first time I remember a president taking sides like that. Like this could be one of my kids like this. And uh, like, fuck man, like, I think as a president, you have to be so agnostic and being like, you know, we're a- Just like a police officer We does. are a nation of laws 
um, you know, while this is always a, a you know a terrible occurrence or whatever, we're a nation of laws, and we will, you know, the the scales of justice are blind, and we will deal with this, and we will survive, and this is an awful thing, and we're not saying it, but like like that's the first time I remember a president of the United States being that divisive. Um, the numbers are there. I'm not going to sit there and say that every cop on the face of the earth is perfect, because we're all human. Um, it's the media. The media drives everything. That's all there is to it. Until well, somebody can change the media. If you turn off the, the media, all this just goes away. If you go talk to your neighbors, I, I tell people, I'm like, hey man, like if if I don't watch if I don't watch CNN or if I don't ever fucking tune into CNN and I don't have to listen to uh, Don Lemon and who's that fucking other dipshit, Chris uh, Como. Uh, if if I could just erase those people, I think 99 percent of this would just go away. And then people get back to actually talking to their neighbors, talking to their friends, and you know, not being polarized by these fucking two pundits. If people would just realize that my personal thought is that if everybody would come together on their own, it'd scare the living shit out of the government. I'm with you on that. And that's well that's part of my positivity. I walk around and spread sunshine everywhere I go. Well, the the, the thing is if you can keep people divided then they can't unite, and the problem exactly. is, is uh, yeah. uh, whatever's happening in D.C. is just fucking about a transfer of wealth. We're getting fleeced. Yeah, but cops are cops are good people. The numbers are there. Um, cops are not supposed to prejudge people, stereotype people, this, that, and the other. Easy, but big country. My, but, you know that doesn't exist. But my God, we get all of the above times ten. Yeah, yeah. you know, and if you call nine one one, somebody's going to be there to solve your problem. That's all there is to it. You know, there's a bunch of really, really good people who are like seriously like would put their life down for a complete stranger. And I don't know anybody, too many other people that would do that. Amen. Yeah. So what's a simple solution for citizens? Take a ride along. Just talk to a police officer. Yeah. What are easy, actionable steps? Yeah. Talk to them. Do a ride along. Yeah. Buy them some donuts. Yeah. Buy them some donuts. Hell yes. I love donuts. That's why I can't buy them. Is, is, is that how you knew you were destined to be a cop? You're like, because yes. I yes. don't really like donuts. I'm I not a donut guy. I love them. I'm not a donut yeah. guy. Like, like when people get all fucking wild about those voodoo donuts, I'm like, I wouldn't fucking eat any of that. Uh, uh, voodoo donuts with. No, uh, just, a, just a hot glazed donut off the roller. That's good to deal. go. I'm not a sweet guy, though. Yeah. But, but it's funny. I just I learned something I learned last year. You know, cops have the big bellies or whatever. And I believe that Doc and I talked about this. You have these, people talk about, you know, in Austin we did 10-hour shifts. It's nine hours and 50 minutes of boredom and 10 minutes of just all ball to the wall. You have those adrenaline spikes throughout the night. Like you're just riding around in your car. Maybe you texted your wife or friend or talking shit to somebody or you're scrolling Instagram. Sitting in your car, whatever. And then the whole world falls apart. Everything calms back down. Well, you've had that big adrenaline dump. Your body needs something for energy. Is it donuts? Donuts is a solution. <laughs> but so you, need ha- you, you need some fuel. And I don't know if it's because it got started because back in the day, like Jack and Jill Donuts was about the only thing open at midnight in 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly why the reason. Because yeah. they were 24 hours. Exactly. And so you needed, your body needed something for fuel to get it ready for that next adrenaline rush. Well, they end up eating donuts, and that's how, that's how you get fat. You make basically poor dietary decisions. Yeah. Well, think about uh, actually the donut to me is the the Bermuda Triangle 
of fucking doom. Think about this. It's fried gluten. So you take sugar, gluten, and fat, and you basically fry it together into dough. I mean, you're pretty much talking about like a nuclear bomb for your serotonin release. I remember Rob Wolf talking yeah. about it. He's like, you could, he goes, if you sat down to, de- to develop the most diabolical food to not only fucking uh, put you into, you know, uh, you know, hyperinsulemia and, and, and all the other good stuff, he's like, it would be a donut. You deep fry dough and then you cover it with sugar. Fat and sugar is by far like the most addictive of everything. Yeah. He's like, the donut is the downfall. And like it was great. I, I I was always like fucked with Rob too. I'm like whatever donut hater, you're you're a donut oppressor. Well, he better be careful. Donuts and deadlifts is going to come after him. Yeah. Well, it's better than you know deadlifts and dildos, which is you know the, the spinoff, <laughs> and then dildos and donuts. Don't don't you remember <laughs> all of these fucking these ins- things? Don't you remember all these Instagram things where it was like caffeine and kilos, dildos and donuts. That's uh, not a thing. Uh, you know butt plugs <laughs> and bench press. I'm um, not putting that into my Google search. <laughs> donuts yeah. and dildos. Yeah, donuts and dildos. Dil- dildos and deadlifts. Uh, <laughs> Pressing butt plugs. Yeah, um, you know. Put that in there. See what comes up. Oh, uh, fuck. I mean, yeah. I mean, all dude. You, you don't remember that? It was like fuck, no. You know. Oh, but, yeah, dude. That, that, that was about two thousand eight. Oh, there is 2000. a hashtag: dildos and deadlifts. Should yeah. I click it? Yeah, hit it. Oh, she is not attractive. Mm. Um, it's only one. Less than a hundred. There's one. You're like, oh god, I don't need to see this. Yeah, no. But something I found with that that uh, I've noticed after I learned about all this, the sleep stuff with Doc, whenever I do not get good sleep, I make horrible dietary decisions. Oh, uh, dude, if you so if you go to bed at nine, uh, like you know, like let's say, like I, I I try to get everybody moving to bed at eight thirty. If we can be in bed around nine, if every hour that you stay up, like the calorie consumption goes up astronomical. If you can go to bed at nine. Uh, you're pretty much like guaranteed. Like, like I always tell people whenever we do any diet coaching or like I, I haven't done it in a while, but we got nutrition guys now. But I'm always like, go to bed at nine. Don't stay up late and don't watch TV. So Why? Because you'll fucking sit up and eat. So think about all the cops that work evening shift and night shift. Oh yeah, no, they're fucking and dude, they're they're asleep too. That's something that that's something that I learned. It was a big thing for me and just putting this out there to help out cops since I learned it. Six and a half hours of sleep or less is considered sleep deprived. Yeah. 11 days of that. Your cognitive ability is equal to a person yeah. with 0. 0.08 BAC. You're Keep legally drunk. drunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 20 days. You're at a point 0.2. You're, you're double legally drunk. Yeah. And working shift work and all that kind of stuff. That was yeah. another thing that was, after I read that book, the second biggest thing I did, that's whenever I discovered uh, Doc Parsley on podcast. I started listening to everything I could get of his. And I started getting my sleep squared away. I'm sorry. <laughs> he told me one time I was like man you listen to too many damn podcasts well he's so monotone you ever had parsley on he's like and then I'm like come on doc can we get a little fucking variation of the voice can I get an up and a down he's like but I love it yeah once I learned all that stuff I was like holy shit and it just it changed so much but the problem is with cops other than I mean especially like right now uh, with all the overtime shifts and all that stuff so, like, we used to either get off on one shift, we used to get off at midnight, another shift, we used to get off at two. People, uh, you have that adrenaline rush, especially when we worked in the busiest, by far the busiest area of the city, northeast Austin. Um, you get off at two o'clock, and you are wired for sound. Wired. Let's get some donuts. Yes. Mrs. Johnson's on, <laughs> a, on airport in 35. Yeah, they'd open up, like, at two in the morning. Anyway. 
So, no, maybe it was later than that. I used to stop Dude, by there when I was at work night shift. When, uh, when I, I lived in Berkeley, the bar we used to go to was called Henry's. And uh, I had to walk down, uh, like, I, I forgot what it was. It was Durant, maybe. And then I'd make a left, and I would have to go back to where I lived. I lived a couple blocks down. They didn't start cooking donuts until about 1 a.m., and then the bars would, uh, you know, start shutting down at, at 1.30, 2 o'clock. some change. And they would literally, the sorority Cash girls only. were like, you know, like the Pied Piper. They would just all, and they used to sell the donut holes in bags. Oh, I do like Because, donuts. you know, that's not a real donut. You can have like 10 donut holes and you didn't have a yeah. whole donut. So they would sell these for five bucks and the sorority girls would just fucking go over and get donut holes and then walk back up. And I was like, what a bunch of geniuses. And one time... Um, I was like making a joke and the guy's like, of course we start cooking at this time. We want the smell of donuts to bring all these, you know, girls that have like moms have repressed them from having donuts and let them crush donut holes. I'm like, you guys are geniuses. I love it. Yes. So. Yeah, that's, that, that's one of the, the cops that stay up late like that, you know, made the, the bad the dietary decisions. But it's hard once you had a, a long, some crazy shit happen. It's hard to get off at two o'clock and go home and just go crawl into bed. You got uh, to meditate or listen to something or maybe take some ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA and then go to a rave. Well, there's a girl that I think works out <laughs> at, yeah, that works out <laughs> at the gym that he does. And she actually started a program here in Austin and uh, she does yoga. I think she's a CrossFit instructor or whatever too, but she has an Instagram and a YouTube and it's called yoga for police. Mm. And she actually has programs set. And I was, and I actually uh, watched the one yesterday. It's like a, when you get off duty, she needs a better name. It's got to be like Yoga for Five O or y- Yoga for the Popo. I I'll, mean, something. I'll, I'll tell her to listen to this and tell yeah, her to be, uh, be like, these. she needs like Yoga for Five O. Yeah, be good. Yoga for Five O. Yeah, that would be good. That would be good. But she has one of her deals. It's about a thirty-minute deal, and it's a. Uh, it's just a when you get off duty, just kind of a stretching, relaxing mm-hmm. deal. And I actually did it the other day, and my ass damn near fell asleep in the middle of the afternoon after doing it. Mm. I mean, I was extremely relaxed. She does stuff like you know movement because those duty belts. Oh my. God. Are you a leather guy or are you a nylon guy? We had to transition to nylon. Yeah, it's so much lighter. Well, Way they less have back leather now, uh, and it's horrible. It's, it's so weird. That's what Tex wears on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, the latex. wear a belt. Uh, yeah. Body, uh, body suit of pleather. Yes. Oh. <laughs> real, real hot and sweaty. That's <laughs> uh, real leather, John. But oh, I, I moved all of my stuff around as far to the back as I could. Yeah. I didn't like anything in the front. Uh, I can't yeah. find her on Instagram. Yeah. Yoga for police? Maybe with a four? Uh, I Sorry, I'm still on the dildos and deadlifts uh, rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. You like, yeah. yeah. Yoga for police. She, she has a YouTube channel also. But yeah, she, I mean, I'll kind of like get off duty, chill, whatever. Um, that's why my guys, we used to sit there and grant out. I like to talk to them too. But if they would, if I have sit there in that parking lot till five o'clock in the morning talking to some of them, because it's That's like good. if they well, if they, they need it. if they need that to to, to unwind, yeah. then hey, cool, I make plenty of money. I I was very fortunate too, and I promoted all my kids, both my kids were out of the house, whatever. My wife was way up there, and she worked all kind of crazy hours. So it's like I get off work at two o'clock in the morning. I have nothing to do. I will sit here and just hang out with my guys. Nice, yeah. Just let them talk, get all that shit out, and then so hopefully they get, by the time they get to the house, they can chill out and go to bed. If uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to learn more. Where uh, where should they find you? My Instagram, John Wayne Reloaded, and John was a J O N. And then what's your uh, uh, website? It's going to be JohnWayneReloaded.com. Okay. Yes. Hopefully by the time this post, it will be live. Awesome. Well, dude, uh, thank you so much for coming on Power Athlete Radio, uh, Mr. McQuilkin. Thanks again. And oh yeah. 
Thank you all so much for having me. I, I love the in-person because now we're, we're pushing well over two hours and it just felt easy. Yeah, it felt, felt real natural. Well, thanks for coming on Power Athlete Radio, amigo. Appreciate it. Best of luck. And thank you, Power Athlete Nation, for tuning in to the Premier Podcast. Right the show. I'm going back. I'm a little great train and I'm right on track. I'm now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find John Stevenson on Instagram at John Wayne Reloaded or at his website with the same namesake, JohnWayneReloaded.com. A special thank you to all of the officers out there currently serving and who have served and maybe are retired. Just know that regardless of whatever is out there, whatever negativity is out there, it does not negate all of the hard work and sacrifices that you've made throughout your career. So thank you very much. Until next time, bye!